Hey, Peacenicks. Today's guest is Benjamin Boyce, PhD, AKA Dr. Junkie. He defies what it means to be labeled junkie or doctor, druggy or PhD. After spending time in prison, he now teaches college courses to those who are incarcerated in prisons in Colorado. He is an amazing voice in the fight to end the drug war, legalize and regulate drugs, and save lives. We can have less people locked in cages, less people dying from drug overdoses, less people addicted to drugs, less people barred from employment, unable to support their families because of criminal records for nonviolent offenses, less people sold into human trafficking or murdered by cartels or drug gangs, less thefts and burglaries. All of these things, if we pay attention to the data, we can see it working in other countries. All of these things will come into fruition if we end the drug war and legalize and regulate drugs. Peace, Nicks. I had a great talk with Ben Boyce. He is an amazing thinker and speaker and writer, and it was such an honor getting to talk with him. Um, if you want to check out his book, it is called Dr. Junkie. Please go to your local bookstore. Find a mom and pop bookstore. You know those bookstores. They, they, they smell like old books in a really good way. You go in. There's just amazing books on display. There's, you know, there's probably a few cats. Anyway, go to these stores. Find a store. Ask for Dr. Junkie. Maybe they'll order more than one copy. They'll put one on their shelves for other customers. Order Dr. Junkie by Ben Boyce. So we're about to dive in, but real quick. If you're a tobacco user wanting to quit, or an ex-tobacco user, like me, who misses the occasional cigarette but doesn't want it to lead back to a pack a day, or you just want to enjoy a sweet, hemp-filtered cigarette for the hell of it, I really do enjoy them. Um, they have original flavor, vanilla, and mint, and you get free shipping on orders over $25. Crim Hemp Cigarettes. Finally, a hemp cigarette that doesn't taste like shit. That's their slogan. Order them at sugarcali.com. That's sugar, C-A-L-I, sugarcali.com. Use the offer code PEACE15, P-E-A-C-E-1-5. PEACE15, save 15%. Okay, let's do this. Benjamin Boyce, Dr. Junkie. America's public enemy number one in the United States is drug Drugs are menacing our society. Any thoughts on the drug problem? I had a great time doing drugs. <laughs> So tonight, from our family to yours, from our home to yours, thank you for joining us. This is the piece on drugs. On drugs. Can't hear you. You mean you want to do it with audio? Yeah, there we go. Should have <laughs> let me know that ahead of time. I'd have prepared a little better. How are you? Did you <laughs> I'm get good. a haircut? How are you doing? I did. I'm good. Ah, that's surprising. You had me all set up. I thought I knew who I was coming to look at. Throw oh, me yeah. a curve right from the get. I see. <laughs> Yeah, I cut it for my grandma when I oh. to visit her. <laughs> that's that's funny. Politics, right? What do you yeah. mean the personal is political? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, no, hey, thanks for uh, being on the podcast. This is really great. Yeah, this is this is it's been uh, fun. I've been I'm right in the middle of the semester, so normally I would have had time to listen to. I I try, I'd honestly try to listen to most of the episodes before I come on. So I've been brushing up on yours over the weekend, and I just got most of the way through your most recent one with your friends. And it's like those are the vibes that we live in this influencer culture. That I get it; it is what it is. But that's what people are often trying to like imitate in kind of gross ways. And it's so nice when you hear people get together that just have a, a vibe, and they're not just bullshitting you. Like it was just real. So anyway, there's my I'm buttering you up to begin with. How do you like that? 
<laughs> I love it. Um, yeah, I, I really do like just being in a studio. That's kind of when I started the podcast. I wanted to have more people in the studio and uh, I have friends that, you know, have been involved with uh, one way or another with the war on drugs, been affected by it and have them in the studio. But once you run out of those guests and you start looking for people like authors like yourself, but th- this has been a whole new you know, chapter in my podcast is I'm learning so much more which actually what you said at the end of your book, you said, I thought I knew enough to write it when I began, but much of what made the final cut was learned or relearned along the way. That's the same thing with my podcast. I thought I knew about the war on drugs. I thought I understood it. I was way off, honestly. Yeah. I think there's something that, that those of us, whether it's like a college degree or an experience where you learn a lot, learn along the way that if you really want to figure out how to convince people that you know what you're talking about. You should not be saying you're an expert. I get they're out there. And if you're an expert in your field, that's awesome. But when people describe themselves as an expert, I'm usually like, the more I learn about anything, the more I'm like, oh my God, there is so much left. I could spend the next 10 years reading and feel like I know less than than I do now because it's an endless rabbit hole. So I totally relate to that. Yeah, it really is. And and I just, in my mind, I, my mind still changes. Like I see things, a new light. And then I talk to somebody else and then I have to question what I just believe. Just, it's like, I, I don't know. Like the legalized heroin is the biggest one that, that I never would have even thought to consider before. I, I was more into psychedelics. I mean, I've, and I've had an addiction to Vicodin. So I understood opiates through my own addiction. And I, it made me kind of anti-opiates, you know, just everybody should get off of them. And then you talk to like David Poses, who's like, you know, he's like, I, it treats my depression. It's the only thing that works. Why can't I have it? And it's like, oh, that's a good point. I guess why can't you? And the reason is, is because right now it's illegal and dangerous on the streets. If we legalize it and it's not dangerous, then why people should be able to do that? Yeah, this land of the free stuff. Like it's funny how fast it can go away <laughs> if you're talking to the right people and they totally forget what is it you're so proud of about this country again? I thought it was a country where that fuck it. If I want to smoke cigarettes. I, I I should know the harms and I should have the ability to get help if I want to quick, but who the hell are you to tell me I can't? What is this shit? But once it's crept in, like you say on your uh, website, about 50 years since this uh, contemporary war on drugs, but really we're a whole century into mm-hmm. people recognizing that, holy shit, there is fame and cash behind getting people terrified of a substance. This is what the monster grows into. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's really, really tragic the way that it's turned out with them um, and how everybody sees, everybody views it completely wrong. And they, um, like I say, we demonize drug use. Um, it's, you, know, you know, it's the most heartbreaking. And I tried to get at this in the first chat, like the first page of the book, because I figured it was a book people were going to want to chuck that we are on the same page with 90% of stuff, but we're also a country that's habitually convinced that we're more polarized than we actually are. And it's happened with the war on drugs. So when you list the things that no matter where you stand with the war on drugs, you hate them and wish they never existed or we could wipe them off the face of the planet or like David Posey's did and like I do, that we need to just legalize them for every reason under the sun. It turns out that if you just list what you want to accomplish, our goals are the same. We want to minimize the harm that people experience in their own lives and from family members and friends using. We want to make sure that street dealers are out of business overnight. And I've never heard another plan that even makes that happen. And we could keep going and we'd find out we have about a dozen things we all want and 10 to 11 of them line up with all of us. And yet we're at each other's throats because 100,000 people are dying and we know, we need to know who to go to war with. Like. 
this is the USA. We got the biggest guns in the world, baby. Tell me who to shoot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and that's the problem, right? Is that it's that's not the solution. It's, there's nothing to go to war with. The drugs are are not killing us. It's the drug trade that is making it dangerous. And um, and like you said, we're not as divided as we think. Like, what is it? Over 60%, almost 70% of people want legal cannabis, but the government's not doing it. I mean, yeah. And um, and like you said, land of the free, that this statement is so thrown around on the right. It's the people on the right that are so proud of the country and the freedom. And they're the ones that are like the red states are the, the furthest from you know changing their minds on the drug issue. Yeah, largely, except when money shows up. We've seen John Boehner. And I, I mean, honestly, I use him as an example. In a lot of my classes, John Boehner was like the head of the Republican Party and was famous for saying obstinate stuff like, I will never reconsider marijuana no matter what you show me, which is just an asinine thing to say out loud, right? But it, yeah. with marijuana, that was actually nice, well played, my friend, is now making money off of one of the biggest marijuana distribution. I think it's multi-state in three or four states now but once it's legal and there's money in it and this is what i think we're going to have to do with the war on drugs is rethink a capitalistic framework because there's folks getting rich whether you like it or not and 100 years in we've all but nuked it and we whatever strategy you can think of with war which is a appropriate term still we've done it all and there's more drugs and more addicted people and more deaths today than there's been and it keeps getting more every year how long are we going to keep wearing a blindfold and shooting ourselves in the feet Exactly. And also, if you look back before the war started, drugs were not really a problem. They, they, they became a problem once prohibition became a thing. It was used as a you know a political tool uh, for racist purposes, for controlling different groups of people. And that's all it was for. And now that we know that and, that, and the information's freely available about this, why don't we say, hey, well, since it was started that way, and since it's not working, let's go ahead and figure out how to conclude it. And like you talked about in your book, this isn't going to be an easy thing to do because industries will collapse. And that's a yeah. big, big point you made in your book. It's hard to even estimate. And people don't really get that because I have a lot of police officers in my family. So I've learned early in life that even if I have a, a problem with law enforcement, I better figure out how to talk about it. And I don't think that anybody wants a world where there's not superheroes who are well paid to come protect me when the boogeyman shows up at 2.30 and I don't want to have to like duke it out or shoot somebody in my house to protect my stuff. Of course, the idea makes perfect sense. But people think I'm talking about cops when I say, oh, we're going to lose. And that's true. We're going to see entire departments evaporate and our cultural heroes will be like on the verge of being written into history books as villains. Oh, my God. But we fail to realize it's not just the police officers and law enforcement. We can bleed it all the way down to the courts and bailiffs and sheriff's offices that are going to lose half of the people in their jail. It's more than that. It's Armark that serves food to all these corporations. It's Bob Barker that makes soap and deodorant and Bob Barker Corporation. He's Bob Barker's not around now, but his name, I think, is still on the company. It is, yeah. Okay. There was a- all this stuff, right? And it, it keeps going to like, well, what about commissary? That's a million, millions of dollars a year putting in people's pockets. And that means people are working full-time jobs. What about phone calls? What about the tech that's now finally bleeding into the facility, right? We've built yeah. it so that we kind of have to ignore all this stuff because it's true. It's all going to take a massive blow. And if you think we're seeing a recession right now, oof, we ain't going to be nothing compared to what we see when this war we kind of convinced ourselves we're not paying for goes away. Exactly. Because we can take the tax money that's spent on the war on drugs and reallocate that. But all the other money that's spent that's in the private sector, that money will not, that, that will just go away. It'll vanish. Even law offices that, that rely on, you know, defending drug criminals. 
and a lot of the public defenders lose their jobs because yeah. that's their main job is defending and doing a horrible job at defending uh, drug <laughs> arrests. But isn't that funny? That's another. I hate to say racket, but I have someone close to me right now that's going through one of their first times in the legal system, and it's a petty charge. It's a like paraphernalia, failure to wear a seatbelt, and petty possession of marijuana, which if you've been through the system, you understand why they did that. It gives the prosecutor all these clever tools to work with that if you haven't been through there and you're terrified, oh my God, I got to go to court. What are they going to do? Put me in jail? Uh, They can say, well, we'll drop this and this. Give us a chunk of money and go about your day. And the system keeps spinning, right? And What we mostly think about when in this case, if you haven't been there, is I got to, number one, get an attorney. And you're right. The majority of attorneys don't do much that you can't do yourself as long as you've got, like, the tools that many people aren't raised with as a kid to know how to speak to people that are intimidating as hell and that hold your life in your hand. And to get, if you're scared to death, like I, I would be, to get the right people around you to walk in there with you, family, support, friends, people that'll say, don't blow $1,200 on an attorney that's going to get you the same deal you can go get yourself. All that's supposed to be that way, right? Because how are we going to question it if I'm just scared to death? And when I walk out with two misdemeanors, I actually feel good about it. Oh, thank God that's over. What the hell's going on? Talk about a mind fuck. It is a racket. If you listen to my podcast, you might have heard the story about when we got arrested going to Bonnaroo music festival so yeah. i won't tell the whole story again but just the racket of the court system when we went to court it was everybody that was arrested that weekend driving through georgia to go to the concert it was all the cool like the coolest people in court that you've seen because they're all the concert goers and they're all in line one at a time as fast as they can get you through they're like same sentence for everybody same court costs and it's not going to be on your record we're going to not even give you a misdemeanor this is to make it as easy as possible for you not to question the whole thing You're like oh good not not in my system give us twelve hundred dollars Give eight hundred dollars to your probation officer. Do a twelve-hour class, and you're done. And one yeah. at a time that happened. And one of the kids I was locked up with, he was like twenty-two years old, and he was like, "I don't have twelve hundred dollars, and my mom doesn't have the money." He's yeah. like, "I'm going to have to do jail time." And that's the saddest situation. And it becomes like it really is. If you don't have it, then you're fucked. But yeah. if you, as long as you have twelve hundred dollars, get on out of here. And yeah. I felt so bad for this kid. It's like if you're listening and you've never been in a courtroom when any sort of uh, you know, you don't want to go to like a trial. That's different. But daily proceedings, arrangements, uh, plea deal, all that stuff, sentencing. And you haven't been there. You're in luck. Technology caught up over COVID. And a lot of these have been uploaded onto like YouTube. If you go and watch like 10, 15 minutes, you will be like, what is this? They're just reading the same script over and over again, like they're branding cattle as they come through. And here's again, like the huge, the vastness of the system we would have to rethink. The terrified folks out there that are like, yeah, those are all criminals. And it's already so bad that we've got to rush them through and hire more. What are we going to do with these criminals? The goal is to make them not be there, not to set them free and purge on society, right? But we have such a hard time considering that because it's another normalized thing. We live in a country that has 5% of the Earth's population, but just a 20, 23%, something like that of the Earth's prisoners. And it's just business as usual here. So we don't feel like that's going on every day. The prisons are way up north. That's where the bad people go mostly. And I don't have to see it anyway, right? So it's all, it's, it would have to be, let's look it in the face, figure out what do you, what's really worth you and I spending 30 to 50 grand as taxpayers on. And if somebody's done something that has us convinced that they really need to be restricted from going back out into society from a time and given whatever the hell they need to be a productive member of society, let's talk about paying whatever we need to pay to get this person out here paying with us, right? 
but what are we doing, right? Just incarcerating people at that rate and knowing that we're building people that will commit the very crimes that they're going to go to prison for, and we don't give a crap. We're, we're a country that focuses on the punishment phase. We see it coming all along. I call it chronic wokeness. It's like this clunky term that I haven't quite figured out how to deploy it a little bit better yet. But like, we always feel like we've arrived, and then we always act surprised when, how could we have known an overdose crisis was going to show up there? And my God, 100,000 bodies. Well, we better go look for somebody to punish. Sound familiar? And we're just in a repetitive loop where it gets worse and worse, and we're we're freaking out because we don't want to look in the mirror, man. <laughs> exactly. Yep. And um, you know, remember uh, Leonard? Oh, you know William Leonard Pickard? He was the uh, Isabel. He was author. He uh, he did write uh, the Rose of Paracelsus. He um, he but he was in <clears throat> prison doing a double life sentence for um for LSD manufacturing he, that he claims he wasn't guilty of. But <clears throat> he was released in 2020 because he was in his like late 70s or 80s. So they they with the whole COVID releases he he got out. He's done, which is amazing because he's a great person. But he predicted he was an extreme genius too. He was a great chemist. Um. And he was a professor, but he predicted the fentanyl crisis. He went to Russia and was seeing it be, the analogs being made. He's like, this is going to be a huge problem in the country if we don't do something about it now. He actually thought his paper that he wrote in college about it went to Congress and they ignored it. They're like, nah, this you know, it's not going to happen. And it happened exactly what he said. And we're not. So here's another big thing. Uh, I, I'm big on like communication theory. And Marshall McLuhan has this famous phrase, the medium is the message that's just confusing as fuck. But what he's trying to get at is that like when a new technology or a new system comes along, it changes the world. And as humans, we're always like, hey, look, Zoom, how does this make my life from before easier? And if it can make it easier for you and I to talk and record a podcast, we're like, let's do it. And we never, because we're always looking back, we seldom look forward like, well, what's going to what's Zoom going to make the world look like in 15 years? So right now he was right. And now instead of like culturally i don't even think people have got to where you're at yet to say oh this guy predicted it but the logical thing at that point should go to should be to say oh shit that means we better get busy trying to figure out what's coming in 10 years five years right now i'm sure you've kept up with this it's big in philly but it's spreading across the country xylazine is showing up in all sorts of drugs and just like fentanyl the main it's a so xylazine is a sedative the only it's a veterinary it's used for tranquilizers and sometimes to get cats to puke. Uh, I don't know why it works so well for that, but it's in a lot of the <laughs> literature. But buried deep in a lot of the animal studies, because uh, human studies never got through, it's not very good for humans for the reasons we'll talk about in a sec. But in the animal studies, doctors found that if you administer this sedative along with fentanyl, you can administer 60% less fentanyl and have the same results. Now we're clever, us junkies, us addicted people. Somebody read this and went, xylazine what the hell is that and like i did three days ago just to make sure i'm not i was coming on this podcast i thought it might come up i googled it and what do you know you can find it online you still don't need a prescription to get it and i can get it now if i'm using dope in philadelphia and spending a buck 50 a day to stay well and i find out that there's a drug out there that is a sedative that'll make my dope last twice as long we built a system so that my logical answer would be where can i get this stuff so it also, it's resulting in these massive abscesses because it, the way it interacts in the body often causes like uh, cell death, makes your cells like self-destruct. Oh, so people are showing up at the ER with these massive gaping sores. And of course, in our country, that means we blame those dumb drug users over there or who's supplying this stuff or who's the, who's the uh, distribution company or who's the person that didn't let the law pass 
in as soon as xylazine goes away, guess what comes next, right? We've seen it over and over with K2, the next nasty, clever thing that we are only using because you won't give us our damn heroin that costs a buck a gram to produce. And instead you force us to buy fentanyl for way too much as well. And we can't afford that now. So the logical answer is to buy it with xylazine. So just like happened with fentanyl, now users are seeking out what's called trank on the streets. It's the mixture. They don't want just fentanyl because it's a little bit cheaper to get it cut. And you know, it'll last an hour and a half instead of 30 minutes, right? Again, looking forward, we're going to see the repetitive cycle play out with different drugs. And it's so tempting culturally to be like, who could have seen this coming? Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's and everything that we've seen coming has been predicted by at least somebody. And the first, the original war on drugs was predicted by the doctors. Every doctor said, if I can't prescribe my addicted patients, their drugs, they will go to the streets. The prices will go up. They will not be able to afford it. They will lose their, like right now they have jobs, they have families, they're good people. This is all going to change if you bring it to the black market. And as soon as it was brought to the black market, every doctor was right. But nope, doctors are getting arrested for trying to treat their own patients. And that's, I mean, like the insidious side of this, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. And luckily you can work this out without forcing the actual, you know, behind the closed doors, finger tapping like Mr. Burns evil session of geniuses. But that this is how you would, if you were say a drug enforcement unit that had really gotten used to getting, hiring an extra person and buy, buying two more cars and everybody getting a raise every year because you keep making drug busts. And now drug users are dying and you're realizing people are getting scared. They're cranking up the money. But what if we run out of people to arrest? I mean, we just we, we always want it to grow, right? <laughs> it would be a really good move to move your target to the doctors if you knew full well that no person that is cut off from their doctor and told to fuck off stops using a substance that's been very beneficial for them if they most people if they can get it somewhere else. And so that to, I mean, again, it's not a conspiracy because I think it was Vincent Sinclair who said it's really hard to get a man to listen to. It's really hard to convince a man of something is if his bread and butter relies on him not being convinced of whatever you're trying to tell him. Since this is just business as usual, of course, drug warriors think that they're what else can they think? But they're doing the right thing. Right. Mm -hmm. So the system's sort of set up in a way that like, well, what do we do now that like we can't crack down on dealers anymore? It, there's a war right now going on. They'll blow your house in half. They'll drive in and arrest you and drag you out. Oops, sorry, wrong address. It's it's hard to ramp that up anymore on that side, but the system always has to grow. So how could we get, say, more users out there? How could we get the public terrified anew of a new crisis? It would be, if you were going to do such an evil thing, exactly what we happen to be doing which as you said to start this talk, that's kind of the theme of the war on drugs in the last 50 years in this country is how could we make it worse in 10 years and then pretend we didn't know? <laughs> yeah, and then as it gets worse, that gives you an excuse to get more funding from Congress instead of less, which less is the answer. We need to end the war on drugs, but instead, well, it's getting worse, so we need a bigger budget. And yeah. it's like, and what, and what budget's gonna actually fix the problem? I mean, I've even said theoretically, maybe a trillion dollars and, and murdering drug users could actually get most people to stop. Is that what we want? Is that I what don't we think want it to? would. I mean, it's just such a human thing. So you murder drug users, you've now got, let's just say on average, five per dead person that are mourning the death of somebody and pissed yeah, off that yeah. the government would do this. This is how terrorists are made, right? And that pain doesn't just go away. And I mean, this is our problem right now. The xylazine thing, the, the overdose thing. The reason suddenly people are using so much is COVID on top of whatever Trump was representing. I don't think he started. I think he was like it coming to a head and people being like, 
this is culturally what's going on. Yeah. We hated each other. It's just like our, our social circles were ripped apart. All of our things that identified us as my identity and your identity. COVID showed up then and we couldn't do those either, right? We can't talk to the support groups that when I was freaking out and feeling anxious or depressed, I could call X, Y, or Z. It's only X now. And I have to actually kind of tap lightly too, because we've all started talking in different ways. The natural reaction to that is to find something else that works and voila, drugs work great for the things yeah. that they work for. We shouldn't be surprised that we're building a culture that incentivizes people since we're still humans. Once we cut those networks off and not talked about stuff to go to the pipe or go to the bottle. Exactly. And this also brings me to tough love. Why that's such a flawed idea. If you cut off the person you love from the people they love, they're not going to do less drugs. That's not how that's going to work. It's not how it plays out. Yeah. I wish like there wasn't example. Or, it's funny. Our cultural go-tos tend to be incredibly unsuccessful things. But if you don't have very many other cultural go-tos that people can look to, they they suddenly look successful. Like 12-step programs, people are like, oh, addicted, you got to get into 12 steps. If you're like, well, what's the success rate? I don't know, but that's what you do, right? It doesn't matter. It's about 20% for the people that are actually trying and staying in the program long-term. I think that's just the one year number is like 20 to 25% of people manage to go one year for whatever they're trying to avoid. Now power to them. But what that says to me is like, we should be desperately looking for the next best thing, the next thing to catch the, let's say 70% of those other ones that fall out. Is there something we can come up with that makes their lives a little bit easier? But if you just build it so that it's 12 step or rot, well, I guess most people will think 12 steps what you got to do because compared to living under a bridge looks pretty good, right? So yeah, you're right. The, the tough loves, it's a funny thing that we managed to build that into culture. But I guess if you're at war, it, weird things like that can fly. Oxymorons, if you will, like tough love. That's, yeah. It would be something, but that's that's not love. No, exactly. And if you want to watch, like I remember when I first started this, I started watching that show. Uh, was it Intervention or one of those? They're, they're the worst shows, but God, I just wanted yeah. to see what the average person looks at drug addiction like and they what they see is the worst cases of drug addiction under prohibition and the doctor on the show as the, the young woman's getting arrested and getting put in the back of a cop car the doctor looks at the camera and says this is really good she's in a very bad place she is very sick and this is going to be good for her i was like yeah. have you ever heard of a fucking hospital you're a doctor why is she yeah. going to jail how is that good for her but that's our culture and everybody watching is just nodding their head this is good yeah. It's, it's again, I, if we wanted to just say what we mean, we're basically saying, let's not use these words, wink, wink. If we traumatize the fuck out of somebody, we can change the course of their life. We can make that trauma so poignant and for the rest of their life, terrified that it might come back up, that they will not only change course and do things differently out of fear of whatever the threats that were there are going to come to fruition. But here's Freud for you. Within a short amount of time, because they're humans, they're not going to keep acknowledging that. They'll find defensive mechanisms to not acknowledge that oh, I'm only doing this under the threat of whatever, because that's an awful way to live your life. You find the things, if any successes show up, which they will, everybody, you know, if you're trying to work a program, you'll hit successes. You mark them and you, you, hold, you hold a coin, say clean and sober for 30 days. And you do your best to minimize the negative stuff because it makes the story a little worse. And as humans, we're just storytelling machines mm -hmm. that are, you know, pay, playing it forward all the time and trying to figure out what just happened. But it's just funny. We don't really acknowledge that, even though we all know it. Yeah. It... 
Sorry, tangent. <laughs> no, no, it's all good. Uh, it's, I just, you know, when I, as I talk about the war on drugs and the more I learn, it's just, it gets so frustrating when we see everything, all the negative aspects of the war on drugs and how it's affected, you know, especially whole groups of people that have been marginalized. And we, and we have the answer that the science, like if you look at the data and the science, the answer is right in front of us. Here's exactly what we do now. What, what do we do about the economy? That's going to all that other stuff around it. That's a, a much tougher but we, we can't worry about people's jobs when it comes down to destroying people's lives. If your job is, if you, you know, and it's like you said, it's not, people aren't doing this on purpose. Like they're, they're, if they're a cop, what was that C.S. Lewis quote? Something like that. Most oppressive governments are the ones who think they're doing it for your own benefit. So if, if, no they're, yeah, if they're able to, to get the job and they think I'm doing this to for good, then they're going to keep doing yeah. it. And they do because they're only looking at the one little sliver of their life in it. They're not seeing the whole picture. The forest for yeah. The and, I, and I like to meet those people where they're at. I got to say, I totally understand uh, Johan Hari. It looks like you're familiar with hers, his work. He's repeatedly talking about wanting to shake the people in your life and say, fucking stop. I don't think he said fucking. He's not really the <laughs> fucking type, but would have had an accent anyway. But I felt that way about myself. You just want to like say, what the fuck are you doing, dude? Just stop it, right? I totally acknowledge that that is what addiction at times in your life feels like. It's always culture specific, right? So I've never felt that way in a culture where I was paying a buck a day to go pick up my heroin at a therapist office where I then had a group session and then talked on my one-on-one -on -one with him and, you know, talked about maybe reducing my dose at some time and how to be safe and how to always keep somebody around, you know, all the stuff that would come with that. Instead, I was just, you know, doing it out on the streets like we all do. I don't know. I'm, <laughs> we, we don't really walk through the front to back of like where we're going with that. You mentioned David Posey's earlier and, mm -hmm. and he comes to mind as well that the, the, stop it the shake and just say stop it turns into something that we internalize in ourselves but at the end of it is always like well what what made you get to a spot where you were like why am i doing this and instead of listing heroin's x amount of dollars my friend died last week from an overdose four other friends are in jail i got a criminal record over my head we tend to just sum it up with like well culture told me that's the right thing to say start mentioning that other stuff and you're making excuses mm. That's yeah. Yeah. Every time you say David's name, I, I cringe a little because I've been saying it wrong this whole time. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah, he's kindred he's, spirits. He was. Oh, he was he great, was man. I, I yeah, I, I really, really enjoyed talking. It's funny to how some people stuff. just have that way and seem to not quite realize how, I don't know, how engaging they are. But it's it's, it's what I was saying to you right when we got on that there's certain things that you hear and they're they're hot nowadays culturally and they're just garbage like you know it's fake as fuck it's just to make a money and then there's other things that people even if it's controversial and you're on the doctor saying why would you ask me when i'm going to quit taking methadone would you ask a diabetic when they're going to quit taking their insulin he's challenging things that people are like whoa dude that's good. it was always just dripping with sincerity and like uh, meeting yeah. people where they're at so yeah, and I, he made me see that differently too, because I had a friend that I've talked about on the podcast, and I quit talking about it after um, I talked to him a while back, and he was just like, you know, I'm not as I'm not addicted to fentanyl anymore. But anyway, I talked to him last night, and he's actually doing really well, so that's great. Mm -hmm. But years ago, he told me he said the same thing David Posey said about the uh, the um, would you tell a, a diabetic to get off of their insulin? And I said, well, if a diabetic quits taking their insulin, they'll die. If you quit taking methadone, you'll get better. And that was my own 
uh, ignorant way of thinking about it. And David Posey's made me realize a lot of people when they quit taking their methadone and get sober, uh, get very, very depressed and suicide is, uh, and it can end in suicide. So that's not, so I was wrong that hundred percent you'll get better. No, you might get worse. So yeah. I kind of saw yeah. it in a different and I, way. And this is like the, the give and take, I guess what I was trying to say is like, I totally acknowledge the people that have been given a script of where to put that angst, that anger, that it's it's like gut wrenching to lose somebody or to even have them struggling with this if you don't understand it and of course if drugs didn't exist i totally agree with you if such a weird place existed well then this sort of addiction we'd still have other addictions but this sort wouldn't exist but you mentioned methadone it's like we don't really know i didn't even know until i went and got on it that like that's not just a replacement drug there's a lot going on there that is the stuff that when we have these dare meetings in high school that shit should be thrown in the garbage and we should be taking the time to explain to kids what's really going on. I don't know if anything I said about xylazine made you want to go out and do it, but it turns out the truth about drugs wipes all that romantic shit away. And some of them, you might still be like, hmm. But on your homepage, you wrote this great story about PCP, which is just ketamine with a longer half-life and how we grew up watching clips or hearing stories of superhuman strength, the same ones that... New York Times wrote about with black folks and cocaine in the 1920s, right? Mm -hmm. It's an old yep. trope. And there's something to that. But what the story is, is a story of the mom who can pick a car up off her baby when it falls. And we're all like, how did she do that? Humans are pretty fucking amazing in some ways when it comes right down to it. PCP only makes people, quote, freak out. And the reason they actually switched to ketamine, and now that's big business, is because on the crash time, when you're going between out of it because it used to be used for surgery and fully conscious there's this anybody that's been in what's called a k-hole or what it, you know often called that i never figured out why people hated it but whatever um i suppose if you're not real good with who you are you could hate that spot but like been in that like dirty dark spot where you think you might not come back or whatever that's what coming down off pcp is and when you don't know where you are and you can't quite figure out what things feel like who you what's what the hell is going on it's called being a human. You freak the fuck out, you get a shot of adrenaline, and sorry he was that much stronger than y'all, but do some push-ups. I mean, you're <laughs> right? Yeah. That's, that's wild. Yeah, I remember those stories in D.A.R.E. classes about the, was it the, the PCP? Guy was high on PCP, and it took eight cops to shoot shooting at him, and he kept coming at him until yeah. finally he bled out. And it's like, for me, I mean, I'm in fifth grade learning about this. Like, it's a story of a superhero, and it's just... It made it didn't make drugs. It made it did scare me about drugs, but it didn't make me not want to do them. It made me a little more, you know, trepidatious when I when I first started using them. But I was very interested in them. This idea of drugs was very, you know, alluring. You're like, oh, something I'm not supposed to do. I mean, telling kids they can't have candy. How many kids will sneak a candy bar? I mean, it's mm -hmm. this is human nature. And and like I said, if we had an honest discussion, South Park had a great episode about that when their parents were trying to their future selves were coming back. Like, man, drugs really messed me up. And it's like, just be honest. The kids are like, just be honest with us. You know, yeah. yes, drugs can be bad, but they also have other, you know, just like, like you said, we have the right to smoke cigarettes, put the warning on the box, make sure everybody knows that they cause cancer and then let us make our own decisions. And that yeah. should be the same across the board with substances. Yeah. People that are, most people that are shooting, say shooting heroin or, or smoking fentanyl or smoking crack nonstop for days on end are in a place that. I can't imagine how to conjure up anything but utter i can say empathy i guess because i really understand i've been there but like even if you don't get it whatever is going on 
how did, how is that anything but compassion? But again, we're in sort of a hundred years into this culture wide brain warp where we don't know what else to do except bad, bad you, how could you do this to yourself? Like, I don't know what that person's going through, but I know I don't understand it. Even if they were perfect when they started, our culture will shit on you the second you're an addicted person. And if you, it's like prison, if you weren't traumatized when you got there, you will be pretty soon, right? It's a system that's built to make sure it self-fulfills its own prophecy. It's the only way that can go. Wow. Yes. And it's, um, that, that kind of brings us to the free will thing. Cause if you look at somebody in that place of horrible, you know, of this, like you say, multiple days of using crack, they've lost their home, they've lost their friends, they've lost their job. And then you go, why would you do this yourself? And that's that's the question you should ask. Why would anybody do that to themselves? It's not, they didn't choose that. It's not like they sat back and said, do I want the house, the car and the family, or do I want to live on the streets and smoke crack? I'll do the crack. That sounds good. Nobody has made that decision because that's what they wanted to do. Right. Yeah. The, the, my uh, PCP moment was the Nobody says, I want to be a junkie when I grow up and a hand comes from off screen and catches this guy, a criminal, I guess, who's like running away in slow-mo. And it's so funny that I it just stuck in my mind. And I was like, actually, I mean, not exactly what you said, not the bad parts, but I mean, if there's something that's out there that's so, it works so fucking good that even though people know that it destroys their lives and it turns your brain into a fried egg, and it's cost way too much money and you can go to prison for the rest of your life and you might lose your job. They still go do it. I'm putting that on a shelf because there's a chance in my life, right? I got genetics that say depression, anxiety, anger, all of that shit showed up. There's a chance that at a point in my life and David Posey's was like the suicide thing. I know a lot of people like that, but it isn't all or nothing either. There's a chance in my life where I'm like, I'm about to do something irresponsible or I'm just, oh, right. I'm Asperger's, which means I'm overwired for lack of a better term. I knew that thing was there even before I knew what it was. Like, why not finish the dare lesson and tell us what the damn thing really is? Because if you explain what I did about PCP, that this superhuman part that we talk about or the... It, this is what adrenaline is, kids. We can talk about how it uh, works differently in your body, sends blood flow out so you can you know, develop short-term what feels like superhuman strength, not fear, feel the injuries that might show up. The reason this happens is because PCP at the end comes with a really long lag time that's disgusting. You're taking the romance and just sort of rubbing dirt all over it and then handing them back PCP and saying, but test it, please, because on the streets it could be, you know, polluted with whatever. Be, be careful, but you'll all be grown soon. And in the United States, we let people make their own decisions. We just wanted to make sure we educate you. You're not going to have very many people walking out wanting PCP, especially if you tell them ketamine's the same experience, only a lot quicker come down. And you can go to the doctor and get a straight up infusion for 15 minutes straight. Like it's so wild that that's the thing. It's not you go take a pill or get one shot. It is like if you were shooting heroin and had needles lined up. And just slowly kept going and stayed at the peak of, right? Because something cool goes on in our brain. Long story, but neurogenesis, basically, if you do that. Mm. Yeah, if you think about the way we teach, um, or, or the, the stories about how they teach children in Portugal about drugs, it's much more honest. And they, and they say, some kids are like, I think I'm going to try them. Like, okay, well, you need to be safe. And of course, they don't have legal drugs. They, they're just decriminalized. And they have a lot better drug testing. So the drug purity is a lot higher on the streets. Um, at least that's definitely the way in Spain. And they, Spain's been decriminalized since 1971, I think. But yeah, to some degree, it's been like multiple 
weird phases of that. And there's now a couple of countries over there that are just like, you know what? Fuck it. Wink, wink. Right. Like the Netherlands is yeah, to some been degree that way, at that yeah. point and has for a long time with cannabis. But yeah. Yeah. We're in a different world where this conversation, I listed them in the book because as I kept writing, it was a chapter I hadn't got to yet. And as I got to it, I kept adding another line. Maya Selovitz's book, Unbroken Brain, went through the same thing. It's the illusion from inside the the forest that, I mean, if you did that, who could even imagine such a thing? And when we're like, well, all over the world, in fact, right over the border in the north, they'll give you a prescription for heroin and people get better. And we're yeah. like, no, does not compute. Run the story by me again, but fix that broke part where the where the person does good when they get their drugs because we're going to have a lot of reckoning to do. I mean, I mentioned that earlier. Can you imagine the Freud's sort of centering our talk today, but the, the subconscious terror that you would have if you are the 25 years into a career as the head of a narco unit over an entire bureau where you've like established it from scratch since the eighties and you are king shit and you've got every medal in the book and a pension that's sweet. They're going to write books about you, your life. Was, and you start to realize at the end, like, they're going to call us the best. They are. I'm, it sucks. We're going to have a cultural reckoning. There's no way this story is told in 100 years that locking people up, forcing them to overdose on shitty dope, making them pay 10,000% markups for dope that's cut and nasty and all the money not going into taxpayer coffers, but into illegal drug dealers' pockets that they then stockpile so the police can kick in their door and take the cash, right? We're, th there's no way this plays out good in the history books once we do what all these other countries have done and add the key ingredient that's missing, which is like when you see that Oregon is gone through what it's gone through and they're like, well, why isn't everything fixed there? We skipped the legal supply part. We've done it everywhere mm -hmm. in the world because people are like, I mean, yeah, let's not lock them up, but what about the cops? What about the dealers? So this magic dichotomy of dealer to user, that's not a real thing in any prohibition culture has sort of been our go-to in the u.s but lots of users go to jail every day even in oregon and denver where places where drugs are supposed to be decriminalized if you have like a gram of heroin in your pocket which some people use in a day go to jail so this whole movement towards decrim i don't know if that number is exact in denver actually i think i'm talking portugal numbers gotcha I, when we talk about like how they're going to look like the, the history is going to write them as the bad guys i mean like I already see them as the bad guys when I've, you know, when you, when you go and a lot of people do, but it's sad watching the, uh, the people that have been arrested kind of um, what is that uh, syndrome when you actually start understanding Stockholm, your characters? Stockholm. you see that yeah. happening. So I, I go to this drug counseling mandatory class for getting caught with pot and you go in there and, and then the guy who's telling everybody the rules of being in the class, he's like, let me tell you this. If you smoke pot even one time and you fail a drug test, I don't want to hear it. How many times have I heard it was just a little bit of pot? You're going to jail. And like when that person says that so matter of factly and just like he's so, so much above us looking down on us, I'm just like, this is a horrible person. I don't know how he sleeps yeah. at night. But you watch the other kids and, I, and I'll sit in these classes when I had to do them and I'm just sitting there calling out every single thing they're saying. Because as long as you do the class, you don't have to pass. So I'm sitting there, I'm, I'm speaking my mind and it's making them upset they're like but they're not doing you know they can't do anything about it but the other kids are like like basically like trying to be teacher's pet they're like no i i know cocaine's evil and what i did was bad i was like was it why are you saying that like you yeah. know, and it, but all across the board these kids just say it's, it's, and it's you're hitting on something which is like i the man they're awful fucking people 
that's kind of what I mean by the terror that's there. I, I think no matter what your uh, religion's a good one here too, because no matter what your religion is, you can certainly don't do this to yourself or it won't work because we're humans. But think of that other religion that like does that fucked up shit that you can't believe they blame on some sort of holy being, not yours, those other people. And how the temptation is to be like, what a bunch of fucking assholes. But in reality, 99% more, I mean, almost everybody, I've never met a monster that knows they're a monster. People think that they're doing the right thing, even when it's really awful. Like it's the, the terrible thing about the conversations we put off for hundreds of years in this country about slavery and misogyny written into the women had no rights and couldn't vote, but they're not even mentioned in the constitution. So like, whew, well done. All that stuff that's part and parcel of what we are. We tend to be like, I can't believe people used to be like that. They used to be like you, right? Yeah. And that's the that's what sucks because I don't want to say that because it means that like we've got to deal with people who are awful and think they're if they think they're good. How? Oh man, we're and you're right. It's they think they know in their heart of hearts, and not because they're delusional, but because they've been given all those medals and promotions and honors and all that stuff I was talking about earlier. When you do that narrative, those kids in that class. They can look around culture and see what gets people a, and what gets people a, and at this point in their life, the real reason they're in that class is because they're not performing citizenship right. And they're, they're learning to perform. Part of that performance wow. is saying cocaine is bad, which so we way, had, like, we cocaine might be the safest drug we use really weird, but it's the only one that never enters the neuron. Hmm. funny it's so it's so taboo <laughs> it is funny and i've i've when i was young i remember doing cocaine with someone that was their first time doing it and how shocked they were at it not being crazy they were like this is it and i was like yeah just a little more excited this is it i mean <laughs> I, oh, yeah this he, is he it. Lo okay, no he yeah. loved it he, he loved it but yeah. he just but he was just like he, he expected i don't know what he what he expected but it's just like an extreme excitement you're just excited to be alive i mean yeah i used to yep. love it except for like and i love how you compared it to the hunt and the feast because i was like that's what it is. It's like you're on a hunt that you never catch anything except for, all right, now more I got to try to figure out how to go to sleep. Yeah. Or just like fucking more, more coke. Yep. <laughs> and yeah, you don't realize how it's kind of like the opposite of Xanax or the mere image. Cause Xanax, if you take huge uh, benzos largely, but for me, it was Xanax. If you take large doses, you get to a point where you don't realize you're high, but you kind of feel like you're close and you just keep eating them. And cocaine's the same way. If you ever see a picture of yourself or, I had notebooks I'd pull out the next day and be like, whoa, pages full of stuff that I thought was genius last night. This is bad. <laughs> yeah, I, it's, I, it's funny. It, some drugs do that to you. It is true. And, I, and, and I, so many times I've tried to write songs on cocaine and it's like I get stuck on one line. I just sit there for hours trying to yeah. figure out how to get that perfect line. And then you, the next day you're like, I, I got that song. And you're like, it's not good. Whereas opiates and other drugs like that have always been very good for my creative process. And I do find with the, you know, if heroin is the more of the feast drug, I remember I, there was, I only did heroin for a small period of my life and um, we smoked it. I only shot it once, but uh, it, it, I moved to Florida, like right during that phase. So I actually didn't have a hookup here. So it just never became a problem. And I don't know that it would have, but um, I, I was smoking it, but smoking heroin with cocaine was the perfect for me. I, you know, it was just, mm. I, I loved it. And I'm not mm. suggesting people do that. Uh, <laughs> you know, I don't want to say I'm sort of promoting these ideas. I just, yeah. uh, but I, I feel like we should be honest about drugs because a lot of the kids I've done did those drugs with, but most of them actually never had a problem and they've all, you know, moved on from that phase of their lives and it never was yeah. an issue. It's the terrible irony that if instead of hearing what you just said and saying, holy shit, get Timmy out of the room and change the station and pretend that nothing's going on, if we just went in and through it, because you're talking about what is classically considered a speedball. 
long story, but that's like really difficult to do in the United States. But most users that use both either, like you said, we smoke them or we just shoot them up one after the other because they don't really kick in at the same time anyway. But that hunt feast thing, you hear it and you're like, are you trying to say drugs are really natural? And they, yeah, but don't get scared because once you get through this, you go, oh, there's a key on the back side of that is to realize if you're experiencing struggles where you're like, oh my God, I'm so drawn to cocaine and heroin or benzodiazepines are also drugs of the feast. You can recognize that other things in your life will plug those exact same holes, not the same way, not as like bulldozer at 150 miles an hour, but understanding that when you take cocaine or you take uh, any drug that you're never engaging something that doesn't exist in your brain. You're activating things that exist all along in through different mechanisms sometime. And finding out which ones are you're struggling with should give us a way to go, oh, well, then if I, I like you said, ah, heroin was, you know, take it or leave it. But when it came to that hunting, those hunting drugs, I was big. When we say drug, hunt of the fe- drug of the hunt and drug of the feast, maybe we should have said this before we started talking about yeah. it. It's really simple to just sum it up and thinking, put yourself in the state of mind where you're hunting. And it doesn't have to be a physical hunt. It can be you're digging through a bookstore looking for that book you know you saw last week or you're working on a paper that's due in like six hours and you're so close you're almost done or you're chugging out a promotion at work that over and over and over you're getting close to that's this hunt and we seldom talk about it but that's where dopamine comes from dopamine is a drug that increases as we're expecting whereas drugs of the feast they're also a very enjoyable thing but they more mimic the experience you would have after you get the thing that you've been hunting so you enjoy the hunt, you're, you're flying through the woods, like you said, you kill the animal in evolutionary terms, because that's where these things come from. And you're like, oh, that was so fun. Well, it ain't over yet. You now get to activate an entire separate system of your brain that would be the, the joy of the feast. And the, the up and down is very strategic biologically. Of course, you want to feast and then sort of go down and calm. And like you said, you go to sleep. Whereas if you're in a hunt, and you're just going to stay in the hunt. Well, it totally makes sense that we're bug-eyed and awake for four days hunting because there is no end to this hunt where you're like, oh, I found the book. Oh, I caught the animal. Oh, I got the promotion. Oh, I, I you know, drove around the racetrack to a certain speed. It doesn't end. You're just always, you're, like you said, you're hunting more cocaine. Exactly. And that's why and I would always, when I, back when I did cocaine, and I, I used to do, I'd say a good amount of cocaine when I was younger, but um, I don't do it anymore. It's very rare if I do. But when I did it, I always had to end with the feast. And for me, it was usually alcohol, which was like, all right, it's, uh, I'm, I'm going to stop doing blow. I'm just going to start drinking more beers heavily. And then that's going to get me to where that worked for you. Um, it was never great, but I'll tell you what would be worse is if we ran out of beer before the <laughs> cocaine and then the, they weren't, the stores weren't open yet. I'm like, now I'm just awake. That is and, um, terrible. Somebody should start a charity for that. <laughs> <laughs> well, see, Xanax was a, a life, lifesaver too. Like yeah. if like, oh, someone had a Xanax, like, can I please get half of that? Thank you. And then you're, you start feeling relaxed, you're feasting. Now it's now I can, can calm down, yeah. watch a little TV, go to bed. And then again, heroin was a good one for that. And obviously the obvious answer is, well, if you didn't do the cocaine to begin with, you're not, you know, and, and now I'm more like, I actually more literally I'll go to the gym. It's like, you know, that's, that's the hunt. And then I yeah. feast, I literally go grill out and make food. But <laughs> yeah. And, the, and this, I mean, the analogy, again, when you walk through it, you're opening up an really interesting door. When we were kids, I, uh, my, believe it or not, my grandson was yesterday and i was out playing basketball with him in the backyard and then throwing a football and we were riding remote control trucks around because i'm like a seven-year-old at heart i just kind of part of me <laughs> stayed there which is fabulous same way <laughs> but i realized 
God damn, man, I've been hunting all day and I don't know if it was worth hunting that hard because I now have the, the very natural, nothing weird about it, physical consequences. My muscles are a little sore. I'm worn out and it's only like, you know, five at night and I wanted to stay up a few more hours. I think we learn this is a process of learning. I think as we get older, we realize as kids, fuck it, give me the biggest, hardest, corest hunt you can give me and let's do it, right? Yeah, yeah. And then you realize like, oh, man, what did we do yesterday? Now, if you're a human, you you don't want to take responsibility. And if you have a nice boogeyman drug called, oh, it's that cocaine, man, we got to stop doing cocaine. And you don't have to talk anymore. And then next weekend, you can find yourself right in the same position until eventually in life, you find a therapist or a friend or a book that makes you go, holy shit. So it is the same thing. And like you said, you find workouts or riding. I like ATVs. I go up in the mountains a lot. Vegas is fabulous for people that love cocaine. Fremont Street on the north side, <laughs> stay in one of those hotels. But there's ways to do that and then get up the next morning and be like, holy shit, I can do it again right now. Whereas with cocaine, oh my God, you got like a day of shit in about a week of like, ugh. I just want more cocaine. This is so boring. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Same with the feast, right? It's like when you eat Thanksgiving, sometimes you're like, oh God, I can't shit for a week now. Just like with heroin. <laughs> yeah. And the cocaine's the opposite. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and Serotonin. I think is, is, it, is that from, so everybody says it's always oh, because it's cut with baby laxatives. I'm like, no, I think it's just, it's a stimulant. So it makes you excited. And when you get excited, that. Yeah, and I believe cocaine in the gut, uh, serotonin is responsible for gut movement. And I believe it instigates, strangely, a big serotonin boost in the gut. Cocaine's weird in that there's some studies that say it actually forces the release of some neurotransmitters, but it doesn't really do anything major except prevent uh, whatever neurochemical comes out. So if dopamine or serotonin or uh, norepinephrine, which is adrenaline, comes into a neural synapse and goes across and binds and say it's dopamine. You're like, ah, instead of then being pulled off by the vacuum and stuck back in the, the, the mm -hmm. presynaptic neuron, which is what's supposed to happen. It just stays there. The vacuums are shut down. That's all cocaine does. So you mentioned like I'd be writing and I get to a line and be like, oh, that's the one. And then that line, all the neural pathway that just fired instead of shutting the hell up so you can be a musician and play. The vacuum didn't work. And you're like, I mean, oh. it is a good line, right? <laughs> Other people are pissed off and they make the mistake sometimes of taking cocaine. And then in the bar, we all wonder why the guy's gone from like, Whoa, to like raging out and flipping table because it didn't deescalate and it can right. go, you know, a number of ways. You've probably seen emotional people that make the mistake of <laughs> they're at a really bad place and they think I'll just do blow. And the next thing you know, they're sobbing on the floor and you're like, oh God. Oh yeah. Cause it just keeps that. It keeps the vow open. Um, yeah, right. Whatever it is, right. Yeah, and I, and I was wondering, you know, so that feeling, like, say, for serotonin in the gut from the cocaine, that when you're talking about what the taunt could be being in the bookstore looking for your favorite book, is that why when I literally when I go to a bookstore and I'm looking for a book, I get that same feeling in my gut when I walk into the store. It's like a feeling of excitement, and if I have to go, I have to hmm. go. Just like it's the same exact feeling. That's interesting. I don't. I I'll bet there is a direct line, right? I remember finding out it was serotonin in, in the gut that moved that made your bowels move, and being like, I guess that makes sense, and not finding a totally direct link to what's going on. Like almost like two separate things are happening. So you've mm -hmm. got the neural activity, but then in your legs and in your you know cardiovascular system, your your heart rate, all those things are also affected too. 
but I wouldn't be surprised. I'm trying to think evolutionarily how that would benefit us. Like you get excited and you got to stop and take a dump. Maybe it's to throw <laughs> off the thing chasing you. So it stops like, what's this? I don't know. <laughs> it could be right. That, that's, that's really fascinating. That's because that would not, you would think that would not help you out at all. If you're being chased. Well, I don't know if you're chasing or if you're hunting, like I'm hunting. I, oh, there he is. Now I got to yeah. take a dump and let and he's going to get away. That is, yeah. So I don't know. I'll have to do some research and get back to you. <laughs> Um, one thing I want to talk to you because what so when I read this book, I've been reading a lot, a lot of uh, different books on specifically about <clears throat> harm reduction and the opioid thing. And this one, it was I found really fascinating. It's great every time I read a book that there's just an, always a new perspective. But I, so I wrote this question down earlier in the book, and and you actually answered a lot of it. And I want to talk about it. You said, uh, or I was going to ask you when you look at human consciousness. You know, through the scientific lens, because I read like with if you think about the universe through that lens, like the way physicists look at the universe and the Big Bang, I read Brian Greene's book and it really kind of messed my mind up a little bit. Like I was like, <laughs> it's kind of stripped some of the beauty out of the universe. And I was wondering when you look at the brain that way, does it kind of do the same with humanity? And you know, I, was, I hear that a lot. And yeah. I honestly, I I feel like it brings beauty to it. Uh, it so among all the other things we're culturally programmed to be is religious. And even if we're not, it's the soup, right? So you can't interact in a world that has a cross and a church every 30 feet and not just normalize like, well, most people must believe in some sort of higher power. And you look around and my God, it's pretty complicated, right? It looks like mm -hmm. there's got to be something that we can understand, but someday we will. And that stripping away of the, the thing that is someday we'll get to know and saying, well, no, let's just chip away at whatever we can find out. I, I've heard that. I think I used to feel that way, but I always feel like when I learn something, you kind of said this earlier, that instead of it losing its luster, like I've been told my whole life it would, it, it almost gained some. And that's partly my Asperger's. Asperger's is like, and mine presents anyway, in this way that makes me like not be okay with not understanding what's going on. So it could yeah. just be that, whereas most people are like, oh, I don't mind the mystery. I'm like, well, I can't sleep tonight. I'll just be up like reading another article about it. So tell me what the answer to the mystery is. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, when I, when I like understood, uh, and I've, you know, I understood from a layman's perspective of, of, you know, the big bang and the, you know, the particles and how they all finally group together. And I'm not going to get into all that right now, but then I, I look at the beauty, you know, I live by the beach. So I look at the water and I just see, it, and I kind of saw it as just particles and just, it was like, it doesn't look like not knowing was what made it beautiful for some reason. And, um, and I, and I was raised very religious. And when I, but so I guess when I ditched the religion and started looking at science, it did, the world did get more beautiful at first for a while. Yeah. But then, but the human, when I think about human brain for free will is a big one, right? That was your, your big point about free will. Cause that was the follow-up question was, and is there a room for free will? And then later in the book, you explain, extremely explain that. <laughs> I'm but, awful, um, aren't I? <laughs> well, there it, is, but not what we think of it. Not when you say free will, certainly not what people tend to say free will means. Yeah, you can't choose what you have for lunch today. So, and that's easy enough to see. And if you can't choose what you have for lunch today, my God, right? You might be yeah. thinking, well, I can, and you're choosing from a list of, I don't know if you're, you know, about more food than any other person I've ever met. So you're choosing from about a thousand items, right? I don't know how many you think around the planet. You don't even know about most of them. And you hate some of those by no choice of your own. Others you've had too much in the last couple of days. Right now, by no, your choice is influenced by so much stuff. But as humans, we've been evolved, we've evolved to like, not recognize all the stuff going on behind the curtain because it's it's a lot more efficient to just let the gears turn without us always saying hey 
no, wait, what are you thinking about, right? We got stuff to think about in the world where we're soaking, soaking up input. Exactly. And when you think about like the free will with drugs, like people choose the drugs that they like, what would you say? 20% of people that take opiates don't even like the effects of them. The guys that I just had on my podcast, we were talking about drugs and they were, both of them were like, yeah, I don't like opiates. I'm like, how do you not? I love the feeling of opiates, but it's just, they, don't, wife. they didn't choose that. I didn't choose to like them. Yeah. My wife doesn't like them. I, I learned this actually. I didn't realize I learned it until 25 years later, but one of my earliest memories in life is a joyous memory of riding down the road with my dad. And I had three sisters and my mom. So all six of us in this little compact car, it's actually a sprint. So that'll, that'll age me a little bit A Chevy sprint. It was a three cylinder <laughs> and I had front wheel drive and had knee brake. And it was a dirt road because we lived in the country and he came over in a hill and then slowed down a little bit and he yanked this thing that until then i didn't know what it was the e-brake and he spun that car around and like kept going i was like what is going on and i i mean i was thrilled i was like this is the most awesome thing that's ever happened in my life and i looked at my sisters and mom and they looked like they they were gonna die they were like stop it let us out of the car right we'll walk home and it was in that moment that like, again, 20 years later, I realized, oh, what I learned in that moment was people are automatically from the get wired in different ways, but it didn't really sink in until, you know, years later when I went, why the hell does nobody in my family have anything that resembles what I have gone through as far as addiction? It's that we're the same genetics, the same, you know, whatever put together the same family structure, same environment, but different basic programming by no fault of my own and if we're starting where this programming already existed shit by the time i was eight or whatever that memory's from what does it do from then on out i mean i imagine it doesn't go away it keeps building my whole life is built off when somebody wanted to do a donut my answer was yeah get out of the way i'll do it for you that's a life course changer yeah yeah and that's it makes me think about my you know i have four sisters and we live with a, you know, an alcoholic uh, parent. Um, and that's all I'll say about that. Cause you know, I don't wanna, but anyway, um, we, so we had the same kind of childhood and I ended up really getting into drugs and that was my escape. And my sisters didn't, they just, none of them did. And I have most of them are like, one of my sisters is extremely anti-drugs and bought into the whole dare thing, has a family and just went in a completely different route. And I, and I always confused me. I figured they're all going to be doing drugs when they get my age. Cause I was the oldest. So I was like, as soon as they come of age, they're all going to be doing drugs. None of them did. You sure they don't so i if it's not something you talk about that's fine i could talk about mine but you mentioned religion earlier is it a, a kind of religion that well all but of them do it's baptist it, we're to southern baptist and actually yeah they're still religious that's another thing they're all very so that, that could have a lot to do with it um but my, it's, my, it's the only all-purpose drug i've ever heard of i mean i if i'm like oh man i i really need to wake up well for me heroin will work for that but if i'm like uh I got to give this speech, uh, shooting up heroin right before a speech, probably not a good idea. Same with cocaine. If I'm like, oh man, I really need to get some sleep. Cocaine is not the right, right. answer. If I'm like, I really need to look normal and calm for an interview or a court date. Cocaine is not the right answer. Right. Religion's the only drug that's good for everything. And it's like, I think of people that can drink a beer a week and be like, wow, man, toasted, I'm good. And other people that drink on a daily basis and do just fine. And that's what I see is like religion's a, it's the same. Well, that's hard to say, but in many ways, it's the safest drug. It's the only one that's like meditation. You can use it just about anywhere. And if you do it right, it answers every problem or question that'll ever come up. And if you're willing to like suspend reason, you can actually get away with that forever. Yeah. And, and well, that makes me think though, when you said it's the safest of the, they did that uh, test of the, how safe drugs were. 
alcohol is the worst. And this is not just based on its effect on the user, but the effect on other people who are around you. So it's like religion's safe for the user, but the people who aren't in the church who are around it can be very deadly for them. If you look at the history. Well, yeah. Yeah. There's it's, this is like a whole nother conversation for another (laughs) day, but my, so you said Southern Baptist, it was nice and cozy spot up the road that we'd go when we wanted to take a nap. I grew up in a, a evangelical charismatic Christian church that was Actually, so evangelical, I don't know if that's the right term, so over the top that it split a few times while we were there because people were like, I mean, we're all into the dancing and singing in tongues, but this is getting out of control. We were like, and so when I think of, when you think of like high, this wasn't like, there's one thing to be like in one accord. It's very similar if you've been to a sporting event and you notice like, whoa, when they're singing the anthem because that's deliberate. Or if you've been to a concert where everybody's like, I, this isn't, it just feels right. That mm-hmm. that's part of the religious experience. Cause you're all in one accord, but no, I'm talking about, we were like, Hey, get out of the way. Give me the needle. Right. <laughs> we were we're yeah. dancing, singing in tongues, spinning in circles. We would have people on one side, uh, say a tongues message, and then everybody would fall silent in the other side of the congregation. Somebody that we're supposed to think had nothing to do with talking about it ahead of time would translate it for everybody from God. And if you want to talk about like, Oh, wow. I mean, I, it was some of the highest I ever got in my early really? life, at least. And that's where I maybe have a different perspective of the religion is I'm like, depending on what sort you take, if you're a, a literalist version that says, you know, those verses that say, if your wife doesn't bleed enough on your wedding night in the Old Testament, God wrote them. They are what they are. You know, when he invents race-based slavery in Deuteronomy, yes, that's true. Like, it can get deadly and toxic, but we're always at a cultural point where we kind of feel like we got rid of all the bad stuff, right? All those KKK pictures in the church from the, you can Google these. There's so many of KKK members in full garb in front of churches, like talking to congregations. I don't think that's because we're back to bad and good. I think that people thought they were doing the right thing. I think actually the people in the congregation and most of the KKK members they might add hate in their heart, but they actually thought historically that they were d- going to show up on the right side of some sort of history book. Yeah. No, it sucks it, to deal with humans. Yeah, 100%. And and I, I wish, I think maybe that's why religion wasn't too hard for me to shed because I never got that high from it. I When I went, even as a kid, I didn't understand it. It was just a boring place that I had to go. I remember when we were in middle school, that's where I first started smoking pot and cigarettes was I met a kid, we'd skateboard and we'd get dropped off for youth group, we'd skip. And we go to the store, steal cigarettes, and then hang out and smoke and skateboard. And, and um, that, so that, that's when I started liking churches when I didn't go. So, it, but I also really wish I could believe, I, if I could just be ignorant and just believe, I, and I, I'm not calling, I'm, I hate to say that, it sounds like an asshole. No, for point. you, it would be, right. If you could yeah. back out of whatever you saw and de-learn it. Yeah, and just believe in something because it would make me happier. I, I'm, yeah. I'm kind of I'm scared of death. I question the purpose of anything that I'm doing because it's all eventually the sun's going to burn out and none of this will have ever mattered. That kind of existential problem. But I think about that constantly. It's, and it's the like, Rick and Morty issue. Like, of course, that's everything there is. Who gives a shit? Get here. Have a good time. I'm about legacy, as weird as that sounds. But I, I'm with you. I just had the opposite experience. I still have people say to me that are Christians, like, I don't know how anybody goes on if they don't believe in God. And I'm like, I don't know how you go on, like, whatever, wherever you think you're going, just write down what you think it's going to be like. I don't know what fantasy it is, but it's always, I hope, or I do, it's, it's a 
faith and hoping and like hoping you're not wrong. And what I'm hearing from your story that I wanted to ask is like, why didn't the shame stick? While you're stealing cigarettes and smoking, didn't you know that there was a chance that if you die when you hit it, you're going to hell? Or is that not something your church really? Oh, it, it was. I just really didn't think, I don't think I ever really believed it, but I did. If somebody asked me when I was a kid, I'd be like, yeah, it's yeah. Real. I just don't care. But if I really believed it, I would have cared. I just, I just had never. And when I remember the first time I got in an argument when I was like 19 years old with a friend about religion, I, I immediately realized I didn't know what I was talking about. And he made more sense. So I just started reading books. I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm done with the church. Like that's, huh. not, I just, it was that's so easy. Good for say. you. That is, I mean, I don't know if you realize how, how that doesn't happen very much because of what you were saying those early roots of just once you do the performance you're in so if you've been saying oh yeah i'm a christian for 10 years you've got to now it's not like today you change your mind you've got to like think about that 10 years of where you were a complete jackass and wrong and if now another five go by and you've treated some people real bad because you felt like god led you to do that or you've made decisions in your life based on the calling of the lord we're humans by the time you're 50 years old, you, I don't know how you could even talk yourself into laying that down and like looking in the face, the workload that's behind that from like letting people know what happened and where you're at now and not misleading them, which was, I'm with you. I always said, if I could go back, I don't, I don't like lying to people because it's just so much energy and identity works so much better when you know me, but it's one of the few things that with my family, I've thought about the time machine maybe not coming out and telling them six seven years ago when i said i'm not a christian because i don't know if you can relate to this but it has not been okay it's it's been like uh literally people in my family have said we don't believe you when you say that we believe that you're still a christian which is like whoa talk about how to shit on somebody and shut off what where do i go from there yeah power to you is that like the people, I mean, we have people that have the brain injuries where they can't move their, one of their limbs, but they believe they still can, even though they yeah. can't, like we have ways of tricking ourselves, but no, my family, my mom will every once in a while, she'll, she'll call me just she, the other day. It was, or actually probably a month or two ago, but she just wanted to let me know that the rapture is coming soon and she'll be gone. And that she really wants me to reconsider. And I was like, mom, I don't want to talk about the rapture with you. Like, this is, I'm sorry, but it's crazy. And she's like, well, just promise me this, promise me that if the rapture comes, and I'm gone and, and, you know, all of our family's gone that you'll reconsider because you'll still have another chance. I was like, if you all disappear hundred percent, I will then consider because that's proof. Now I would have yeah. proof. But that, and there's somewhere I so saw, I like you're ringing bells of my whatever, four or five years ago. There's this point that comes early on when you've at least been up front and said, I don't think that where somebody calls you, they're like, I call and they put, but they don't do it like that. They do what they just did. They put you in a position that if you really are moving and wanting to be, pressing forward in your life and moving it don't not being afraid of looking directly at topics when somebody says to you i really wish you would reconsider you got to know somewhere in your heart that there's an answer at the tip of your tongue that's something like how could you reconsider faith and it would like it doesn't even make sense it's nonsense how you mean reconsider lying and all of what i'm saying is opening a can of worms that prom i promise you i have not figured out a safe way to navigate it because whenever you leave amway or apple or a religion for moral reasons and the people that you knew when you were there say hey where'd you go oh i left well for goodness sake why about two sentences into your explanation they're not listening to you talk about yourself anymore they're listening to you talk shit about them and we all know that so it's nice that you have the manners to be like I don't really want to talk about this mom into when the evidence did show up to be like, Oh, of course, if that's what this is all about. It's not, 
it's just that I don't want to lie. It's faith is like, I don't know how people get off on saying, oh, it's just believing something when there's no evidence. It's, it's the belief part. Because if you're saying and lying about it, if you don't quite believe, I'm not good with the mind game stuff. That's creepy. And if we're wrong, we're misleading. Like our kids think we're God. They believe us when we say we believe in God. So I've never told my kids I believe in God unless I did. So Oh, we're all over the place now, but <laughs> it's all good. But that's what, that's what faith is, is it's admitting that you're not going to, you're not going to question anything. You're just going to say, no, I believe yeah. it. And anytime you ask them a question, like, well, how does that, and this is the, my, my, I was reading the Bible a few months ago and I was just wanted to just, I was like, I'm going to try to read the Bible. And every time I try this, I start at the first chapter and it doesn't make any sense. Old Testament, you know, it's just like Adam and Eve have two kids. One kid kills the other kid. And then God brands him so that all the other people will know that he's a murderer. Who are all these other people immediately? I'm like, this doesn't make any sense. Where uh, all of a sudden there's just a whole civilization of people. Yeah. I think the idea might've been, these are the creation of the Jewish people, not the entire world. Yeah. Or before the story to me is more of the exodus from hunter and gather into agriculture. And that makes more sense. And that's where everything kind of went wrong with our species. If you look, you know. Yeah, it's the, it, and it, I read it as a history book because it's hard when I read like the Old Testament and see these things that were blamed on God over and over again. Like, yeah, God in Deuteronomy was like, all right, here's what I want you to do. You should keep slaves, but only from other tribes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that sounds like any God ever. I don't think so. Somebody was writing laws and this right. tells me a lot about humans. It tells me a lot about what we've been at our guts since we were at a stage when we could record it and not have it burned a hundred or a thousand years later when that history finally got stuck at least for the time being nobody somebody might still come along and obliterate everything who knows but from there there's there's themes that run all the way through and it's like i it, the bitterness that would otherwise i think it was there when i was a christian i don't know how you couldn't be bitter if you believe that the almighty savior of the universe who wants you to love people as he loved you loves people by leveling an entire city of people because they love one another the wrong way. And when Lot and his wife are walking away and his wife is broken hearted, every one of her friends is being tortured to death, screaming for their fucking lives behind her. And she looks back and God says, oh, right. There's no, it is what it is. It's a great story about how humans write stories, but you, you can't find any love in there except what we were talking about earlier. You could find an image of what you might call tough love. And if oh, you yeah. grew up learning, it's okay to do that sort of thing. Well, of course, by the time your kids are addicted, you're like, oh, I know about this tough love stuff. I'm just going to use that. Oh, that's that actually is a crazy thought, but it, it makes perfect sense. I mean, it's so embedded in our culture, this religious thing. And if it's at the root of a lot of uh, people's feelings on you know addiction. They're going to go right through the yeah. lens of their religion. And um, and it is crazy. Like I had family members when uh, Katrina happened that said that, that, you know, is it a coincidence that New Orleans got devastated? It's a city full of sin. I'm like, so, so you think this is because of their sins that, because all the people that were doing the sins don't even live there. They, they visit there. They're not even there. It's the poor people that are on top of the roofs. Oh, God will rain down the sins on the sons of their, the sons of their fathers and the sons of their sons. It's like seven generations or something in Jewish law. It's funny how quick they'll go to those. They probably said that to you, if you remember They'll go to those laws when it's handy. But if, if you do what I just did, because I spent my whole time in prison pouring myself into that book. I was like, I got nothing else to do. And I was in junior Bible quiz before that. So like when you're like, I don't get it. I got it from every angle and then I did it myself. And it's what led me to be like, you know what? This is too many hoops to jump through. But they, they think that you're attacking, which is why I'm like, it's, it's great to have realized I don't have to hate the book. In fact, there's a lot of of content there but when you try to talk about it as content instead of holy we're back to the i left apple for moral reasons and 
you're thinking I'm talking shit about you because you get paid by an not that Apple's immoral. That's not what we're talking about. But that whatever corporation organization I left and you're still a part of, of course you think I'm judging you. I don't know. It's a pickle to talk about it if we've built our culture that way. But that's why it's in part so strong. Like if you leave, you're the bad guy. There's no way around it. Yeah, yeah, and I, I see that, you know, and I had a, a friend that's a Jehovah's Witness, ex-Jehovah's Witness, and <laughs> and that you really see a lot of of that with a with a kind of a cult version of Christianity like that, and they're all versions of cults in my opinion, but this one's worse because they will cut you off, and and you just see when when he said he didn't believe, it's not like all right, well, I'm going to call you every few months. And we're going to have this argument, but other than that, everything's fine. It's like, no, now we don't have a relationship anymore with their own son. It's like we now can't talk to you because we are elders in the church, and you don't believe, and. Yeah. I'll go ahead. I like it. Sorry, go ahead. Well, I was going to say he had a friend that was uh, got cut off because he was found out he was smoking meth. So he's at one of his low points and immediately is cut off from all of his friends and family. He won't even talk to him on the phone, and so he hung himself. And that's what happens to in some of these uh, you know stories where it's it's clearly tough love is a horrible horrible idea to to do to people you love. We're right back in the class you were talking about with the kids, young, I say kids, that's funny, I'm that old now, who are starting to parrot the lines that you're like, what are you talking about? But they're starting to say cocaine's bad, that are watching the kid from, if, if this was the church instead of the drug class, are watching the kid get cut off and pushed out into the world. And they're seeing what happens if you say this thing. Oh, you'll, you're, you're probably going to at least be cut off and never seen again, but you might actually die right? That's how sincere this or severe this is. Of course, we do things like, so if I do what Aaron's doing and mention some stuff I read last week, that's really interesting, by the way, I'll get condemned and like threatened with some sort of new way to get kicked out of a clash can't get kicked out of. But if I say, oh man, cocaine's bad, I'll get some of that like good boy daddy energy that I've been struggling a lot with anyway. Mm -hmm. That's one of a million things that leads us to deep addictions. The system's built to incentivize people to turn away from inconvenient facts and to just do the status quo, put your head down and go to work 40 hours a week until your hands fall off and then retire miserably for a couple of years. Yeah. And, and also we, the people we look up to on television, like when we're growing up, uh, every hero is the guy who told his friend about who had the drug problem and got him off. And then he's the hero. And the kid that was on drugs was stealing from somebody and learned his lesson. So, so these are just things like, I want to be the good guy. I'm the hero. I'll get the guy off drugs. I would never touch drugs. And for yeah. most people, especially people who don't have childhood trauma, I think having a, a, some trauma in my past and stuff like that kind of led me to question the whole establishment because I didn't trust my parents. I didn't trust what they were teaching me because I didn't trust them. So I was like, all right, well, I'm just going to figure out things for myself. So when my teachers told me about drugs, I, I stopped going, I dropped out of high school. I, you know, I ended up going back and doing some college, but I just didn't, the whole system was just flawed to me. So I was figuring out, navigating it, you know, myself. And I think that yeah. happens to a lot of children that go through things, children with more normal childhoods. And it's not always the case. Some people with completely normal childhoods still find their way into in drugs for different reasons. Yeah. yeah. Trauma is funny. I say a lot that you could have like three people in a room, four people in a room, and three of them remember whatever happened on a certain day 20 years ago is like, I thought we just hung out and watched TV. And the fourth can be like traumatized and have a lifetime of terrible stuff that they never even until recently tied to that thing. Because trauma is just a, it's a personal thing. Some people go through awful, horrendous stuff and they thrive, they get through it, they figure it out. And other people, I mean, it's right back to the free will thing, right? I can't choose 
how much that trauma affects me and whether it results in massive depression and I can't come out of my room for weeks on a time or whether I seem to be the person that like turns into Tony Blair, is that even his name? The positive talker guy. I take my bads and I turn them into positives and I go out and spread the message to the world as much as I would love to, well, not really strangely, but in our culture, I'm supposed to love to <laughs> brag about all my accomplishments. Hey, y'all, look at me. I got out of prison. I was uh, addicted to cocaine and heroin and injecting it every day, all day. And now I've succeeded. I teach classes inside college, or I teach college classes inside prisons. I got this podcast and a book. And the more I look for, like, if you try to finish that thought, because I rolled 14 sevens in a row at the crab table, craps table. Like that's the closest I can get. Yeah. It, it's always like, well, because that one time when I was on the verge of dropping out, I bumped into that right teacher at the right day. And that other time that class I should have failed, they bumped me up to a D minus. I mean, it's 10 million things that just sort of fell in line that are all based on. I enjoyed reading books when I was seven. I didn't choose that either. If I didn't enjoy them, I wouldn't have ever been successful in college. I was taught how to interact with those, that group of people, academic, like sitting in a classroom, looking forward, minding my business, right? Speaking the language. It's none of that shit's what I chose. I didn't, maybe I was at the pre-life conference where they were like, so what do you want? You want brown hair or blonde hair, six foot one or five foot eight, but I don't remember any of it. So... <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So, so many things are just not shaped by our own decisions and, and who make us who we are. I, I look at a lot of my friends, the way they grew up, their parents basically ignored them and they just watch TV constantly. And, I, and if I went to their house, that's what they were doing. And none of them read now. And I, I don't know if what my parents did was how, how it truly affected me. But one of the biggest things is there was a very limit after 30 minutes, maybe an hour of television or video games, one or the other. It was you're done. And it was outside. We lived by the woods, played in the woods. And just being in the woods as a kid, I think it made me more. I excited to live. Like if I would have just sat in front of that TV, it's probably what I'd still be doing yeah. now. Yeah. There's a lot. I'm like looking this right in the face now. Cause I'm at an age where my two youngest who grew up in my one's, my stepdaughter and my uh, bio son grew up in my house for most of their life. And they had, I, I was telling my wife the other day, I'm starting to think we weren't really bad parents. I always thought we were like mediocre at best. They were forced to read an hour a day. That's how we usually did it. If you've read an hour a day after school, whatever time's left, do what you want to do. If you don't want to read, let's find something else. But you've got to be pouring in. You've got because we're Yahoo, both of us, my wife and I are like, we're Yahoos who fucked up and we want to. And it's funny now that they're 22, 23, 22 and 24 or something like that, and how their lives are just on a different course than a lot of the people around them. And my, my son's like on the verge of getting his bachelor's degree here in Denver. But that, I, th I mean, I think you're right. If anybody's listening, I think we underestimate that. And in our culture, from top to bottom, it's the theme of this episode, we're incentivized to do bad, lazy shit. We've had, we got a culture that still to this day, a lot of people spank kids which if that's your decision, that's fine, but we never stop to think why you're resorting to hitting him. It's because it's so easy. You know what the alternative is to saying, oh, I'm not mad, but we're gonna hit you. And they go, ah, it hurt, now I know. We could talk about what happens later. It stops learning, it raises all the chemical levels in the brain that halt growth and emotional development, and they never establish a memory that's legit once you've hit them, so you're not doing yourself any favors. But what you have done yourself a favor on is you can get the hell back to whatever you were doing. Because otherwise you got to sit down at the table with a seven-year-old or a four-year-old and say, what's going on? Why did you do this? 
okay, what can we do to make this better? Should we use positive reinforcement or negative reinforcement? Okay, that one didn't work. Now we got to start over and try again. Okay, that one didn't work either. In 700 attempts in, you know your kid really well. You got a great relationship, but you're exhausted. Hey, maybe I could just hit him, right? And it was another thing. I hadn't really thought through this, but I just never spanked my kid. I never felt right about it. And to look back on it and realize, I think that's another thing that built in right from the get. He I'm like so traumatized anti-violence, but he picked that up as well because it's something else we teach kids. We teach them if you're spanking your kid, violence is indeed a solution to problems. It's got to be done the right way, right? But yeah, of course you can hit somebody and fix something, especially. Yeah, Yeah, and and that makes me think about my childhood when, you know, my parents were very spare the rod, spoil the child. And, and, and my grandmother would say, I was, I was the most well-behaved child ever. And it's like, well, there was a reason for that. I was terrified of what would happen if I wasn't, but it wasn't because I wasn't in my head still wanting to do the things that another kid would do. And that's why when I got older, it came out in different ways where I became the only grandson that she almost got scammed from somebody calling, saying it was me or saying it was her grandson. She's like, Aaron. Yeah. Aaron asking for thousands of dollars because he's arrested in Mexico. I was at work. That's, a, that's that she, works so it, well. It doesn't. She said I, it was I'm not only, for me. I've never done that. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, she said, I'm the only grandson that she would have believed that was story was believable. And it's mm-hmm. like, cause, cause like Aaron in Mexico arrested this makes sense because I'm the, I was became mm-hmm. the problem kid. And it's because I was so good when I was young, you know, and yeah. then I look at my cousin's kids that they live in California and they, they don't discipline their kids at all physical. And, um, and I remember that they would, their kids would be brats as kids do. And they're like, these kids are going to be just on, you know, they're going to be crazy when they get older. They're the most mild mannered, well-behaved young adults. And they're just so smart and got it together. It's like, cause they were raised properly. They weren't hit yeah. for their punishment. I mean, I think it, just speaks volumes you see it in person you're like this is yeah it's relationship i mean right from the get you're building a relationship where you're not building it we have a lot of gaps like paradoxes that kids just go through and they're told to be quiet we never read them the rule book about like what laws are you allowed to do and not in public you're just supposed to figure it out by the time you're a certain age and one of them spanking if you do it because you build a relationship with a child where you're the one they trust more than anything else and you teach them, most of us, among other things, violence isn't something that we should use. If somebody hits somebody, they're in trouble. If you hit somebody, you're in trouble. And then you hit them. But you're supposed to be the one in power over them. So it, it's like we we don't really even think through what we're doing, but we're supposed to have that sort of culture. Because in the name of simplicity and of you know getting back to whatever you're doing, it's really effective. And you nailed the big thing that seems to be showing up today. Is this a new practice? Last hundred years? Last ten? Oh, no, no, no. It's been defended by, and when you can blame some shit on the man upstairs, oh, it's really hard to weed out because nobody has to look in the mirror. They can say, hey, I have no choice but to hate gay people or to uh, to hit my kid. The Bible says spare the rod, spoil the child, or to not hire somebody because of they're the different religion than I feel safe with, right? Those things are indeed blameable, but you aren't doing yourselves any favors by blaming God for your bad behavior. We're gonna get in trouble today. It's <laughs> <laughs> all right. I feel like most most people who listen to my podcast at least know where I stand on it. And I always try to tell people if you find happiness in religion and the great. I've you know, I have no problem with religion as long as you're not being an asshole about it. And you know, most people aren't. Most people use their faith for their own. If you're not justifying beating your children, you know, then good. I'm I'm still convincible. That's my thing, is it I think it annoys people, but I tend to point out that unlike whoever I'm talking to who I think has a list of things that it doesn't matter what sort of evidence I offered and I wouldn't even try. But if I said, let me prove to you that Jesus wasn't born of a virgin, right? 
They don't, they're not, who cares? No, it, faith doesn't work like that. It's not susceptible to evidence anyway. So shut the hell up and stop attacking my religion. That's not where I'm at. My door is open. Like if anybody ever comes across shred of evidence, I'm always encouraging them, hand it to me. And it starts these great conversations that are long overdue in our culture about what is evidence. Because the the election thing that just happened this, this last little bit, I had some family members that were just all in on like, the big lie. And I was me instead of being like, ah, I mean, I felt that way, but I was like, you must, I, I, I respect you. You're really smart. You must have seen something that will save me hours or days of searching for it myself. So just hand it to me or tell me where I can find it. And it was the, my pillow guy, three hour rant with no wow. evidence, right? Because we don't really, we don't learn, especially if you have an area of your life that you get to carve out and say, I don't use evidence there. We don't even learn what evidence is. So somebody saying something that makes you go, oh, machines came from where in 1978? And there was a secret phone call with two people. Oh, that isn't evidence. That's a bunch of weird stories that you can, because <laughs> you're a human, make cool, fun lines to and make a story in your own brain. And we're a culture that's like started to let that happen everywhere. Yeah, I think COVID kind of expedited the whole, everybody's freaking out because it was already happening with, with Trump and the fake news thing. And then COVID happened and people saw what was on the news affect their lives in a big way personally. Yeah. And the news became real and became the enemy. So mm -hmm. now, and people see the world that way. And my family, a lot of them, not all of them, but a lot of them are, they, they believe the big lie still. And, um, but it's weird now because now they're like, they don't, they're, they're more DeSantis now, which is my governor. And they tell they tell me how much I love my governor. I, you know, it's like, oh, well, I mean, I like that I got to keep working. That was great. But I'm not going to sit there and back up every, all of his policies yeah. and politics. Yeah. But um, but yeah, so my family's like that. And I, I get it. And and, and like I say, it's, it's hard to talk to him, too, because it, it's become its own religion. Same with like patriotism. You see it. It doesn't matter how what you say about America. You're like, so you hate your country. You can leave. It's like, well, first of all, this is my home. I'm not going to leave. My friends yeah. and family are here. And um, also, if I leave, how can I make something better? I'm trying to make it. The, yeah. I, I'm trying to make America great not again just make it great let's do let's make it better than it is now yeah. and but you say something like well land of the free how can you say that when we have more prisoners than any other country in the history of the world and they they just they're just like that's not true you're, you're listening what you're saying is false i'm like well all right but yeah. it's not <laughs> and it's beautiful it, it's odd to be able to say this because we're kind of at a cultural reckoning moment that's being dragged out but it is actually beautiful in an odd way to realize the declaration of independence and the constitution and all of the bill of rights well eventually we got to some of the stuff but the constitution was written in a way that said black folks don't exist in fact they're not even really mentioned oh we added this little line that's like well they kind of do but i get to vote for them right this clearly terrible racist and then we left women out and made sure they didn't have rights and we left anybody that wasn't from the united states and then in short order we invented whiteness it wasn't a thing until the eastern board state started in creating laws that said if you're a white person you can kill a black person and never be charged with a crime if you're a black person you can't learn to read can't get married can't own property we most of us know these laws that was the first time that like whiteness even existed when you realize that we have come together despite our polarizing differences there were people that were like i'm a constitutionalist if you hate this country get out and some of us were like i think women should be able to vote and i don't think that should be that controversial and we worked it out we talked it out we at times have had to war it out right that same document still the same document if that's not what people mean when they say they love the united states that over and over we have gone 
oh my God, this is going to take some work, y'all. But we were way fucking wrong about the slavery thing. And we have got to fix it so that it's, it's at least started. That is what the United States is. We're the only country that's still around that's that old that started, founded on white supremacy and nasty patriarchal misogyny. And we're actually like, we got gay marriage in the United States now, right? If you're not seeing this arc that has been like really hard and fought out by people like you and me and millions of others, ours is just the drug war, but millions of other causes along the way. I don't know what people mean when they say they love the US. How do you even tell the story without all of those huge defining changes as really well said and i and i mean yeah and what and what are we trying to do like so we look at the problems we've seen that have happened in the past and we tend to look at them as only in the past we fixed it racism's over we want everything but we haven't and that's why we have to look at what's happening now what will in 50 years we look back and say i can't believe they were doing that and start fixing what we're going to look back and see and i think the biggest ones right now are the environment, the environmental issues that we're seeing and yeah. mass incarcerations. You know, that's that's the one I'm fighting. I think I think you're right. And I think the war on drugs is going to be when it finally happens, it's going to be this watershed moment, because you if you take uh, drug possession charges and uh, dealing just drug dealing charges at the federal level, half of everybody in federal prison is there for drug charges, half a full half. I think it's 51 percent or something. But if you go to the state level, this is harder to spot because it's. 12, 13%, something like that. But then there's a bunch of petty property crimes. I have eight felony charges, did a year and a half in the large, in uh, the largest walled prison on earth in Jackson, Michigan, back in 2005. For uh, I was in mainline injecting cocaine and heroin all day, every day and smoking fentanyl and I couldn't afford it. So I did petty theft stuff. I'd like steal an ID out of somebody's car and then go to Best Buy. And since I Hey, how are y'all doing? Right. I would open an account and buy five PlayStation fives and drive directly to my drug dealer's house. And when it all came down, guess who didn't have a single drug charge? Me. So I have to sort of include property crimes. And if I'm going to go that far, I should include these things called public disorder offenses. Things like a DUI can fit on there if it's like your fourth one or something, which in my mind is a drug issue, mm -hmm. but also public intoxication. Uh, being found in a building where you're a vagrant, but being obviously there because you're not stealing, but you're just sort of crashing out, things like that. And by the way, I've seen an awful lot of assaults and violence that happens either because somebody is really intoxicated and not being properly taken care of, or somebody stole my dope because I can't call the police, right? So a big chunk of, it's 57% if you add just those charges in, leave out for now, sexual assault, uh, any sort of uh, murder, things like that, because we could talk about those too. But 57% of the people that are locked up in state prison are there for a chunk of charges that are pretty damn suspect. Now, we can't say for sure, but we know that the people that identify as substance abuse, having substance abuse issues in prison is in almost 80% of people that are there across the board have some sort of mental health disorder or substance abuse issue. So it's not hard to recognize that when we look back in 100 years, we got something to be ashamed of. It's that we were taking people who had a problem with substances that in a hundred years, people would be like, fentanyl, that, that shit at Rite Aid, I saw it earlier today. You're is there another fentanyl? Well, what, yeah. Was it not in vaporizers at the time? What, how, somebody explained yeah. to me how people were getting in trouble with it. Well, war on drugs, xylazine got in there. It was supposed to be heroin. It had fentanyl in it, right? Yeah, yeah, it's... it's... Um, should I just do a blank? I, I had a point on that one. Sorry. Um, damn it. Um, bulldozer, man. 
that's me. It'll come back. Yeah. Yeah. Every once in a while, my mind just goes blank. I'm like, fuck. Um, oh, I was going to talk about the, uh, the, the people that are in jail for things other than drugs that are related to drugs. If you look at the number in Switzerland, um, Switzerland, since they've legalized heroin for addicts, their auto, automobile theft went down 55% and yeah. armed robberies down 80%. So that right there is a huge chunk of people that could be in jail in our country because I mean, we're all humans that Switzerland, these numbers are going to happen here as well. You're going to see all these crimes and that's what people really care about. Do you think someone cares about drugs being legal because they don't want their neighbor doing drugs? No, they think drugs equals crime and it does in the black market. So get rid of the black market. Yeah. But then again, we're right back to this thing that like somewhere in the back of the rodent brain, brainstem area of police officers. And this is where it's like all the way through, not only the, the detectives and the sergeants that have been narco cops and pulling down six figure salaries, but the rookie who's the first guy that's going to get fired. If we got to make cutbacks next year, top to bottom have to, in the back of their mind go, wait, this motherfucker's talking about not just drug crimes, but also drug dealers and violent crimes. Hold on a sec and theft. Who are they going to arrest? And what if these crimes really do go away? Oh my God, they're, we're going to have to cut our departments in half. We'll have not only a bunch of money from the taxes paid on all these substances, but we won't have people having to pay out of pocket to fix their upholstery because I bled all over it when I stole your stereo. We won't have people having property damage, physical damage, medical bills. You and I won't be paying for funerals and medical care for addicted people who overdose on the street. Across the board, it saves money, but it is going to take money out of a couple groups' pockets that... I mean, whether they notice or realize it or not, there's no way you don't think about that if you're somebody who's got a nice police officer job. It's true. But if you think about the money that they're not making is money that other people are saving. And we tend to spend the money that we save on other things and reinvestments. So the money will end up in other pockets. And the question is, is what industries will be created? I think we need to first and foremost have a mental health industry for free mental health for for our people and public housing for people that are homeless and immediately we can see jobs in all those fields and that, that can take some of the brunt of the job loss. Yeah. Yeah. The, the police officers are tricky to me because there's a specific identity aspect that it's, it would be really hard to expect people to lay down whatever is being fed in them by playing that role. And I know we would have like transport of drugs, but I think we we're going to have to work really hard to figure out what, how do you, identity is more than just your job, but I mean, it's like who you are. And if you start saying, well, sorry, you can't be a detective anymore, but have a good life in, in yeah. what I don't want to retire. Right. And it's going to be across the board. I uh, actually, I talk about this in the book. We often also leave out the drug dealers who are important to think about because they're not the people we've been told they are. Yes. There's rich monsters out there making a bunch of money, but there's a lot of people because of the system you just described being so jacked up that they actually have to get big doses of pills and then sell their pills or they're going out and buying from one person and splitting it into two or three pieces and selling it to others so that they can feed their own habits so that they don't have to break into a car. What are we going to do with these folks when they can't sell drugs anymore? So it's like a a whole rethinking top to bottom that you've got to crack a wall on people to say, if the goal is to reduce crime and addiction, let's agree that whatever the science says will do because otherwise that moral shit's right back in the front of their brain. I agree. And I, th- I think that if we look at the uh, the problem that the drug dealers have of they're selling to, to supply themselves afford their own addictions, if we, if we were to socialize the drugs and make them uh, freely available, but this goes completely, it probably won't work in our culture. If we're not able to profit off of it, no one's going to be interested in doing it. So how would we make a, if we really completely open up the market and don't make it a prescription-based thing, the drugs will get very cheap. 
And, I think um, we could do it. So here's uh, right now I'm seeing Canada actually has a couple organizations that I've been watching, loving that for about a month or two have been handing out at various times, heroin, cocaine, and methamphetamine. And I think Xanax on the street, giving it to addicted people in this sort of publicity stunt. And we haven't done that yet, but I'm thinking to myself, they're buying it from somewhere. And there's lots of people that will fork out money to donate to uh, harm reduction sites. Uh, there's a lot of people that donate money to methadone clinics because it's one of the in Suboxone to pay for indigent users because it's one of the places you can go get a heavy opioid every day and not go to jail. And I think that if we allowed Purdue to make this and made sure that all that uh, that praise we bestow on our cultural warriors will suddenly to some I mean, this would be a great time for those companies to find something like this will be shown towards them if they make sure it's affordable, they can still make a profit off it. I think you'll see people like you and I and the Albertus Project and the harm reduction units across the country step up and start donating money and they'll still get paid. And I think that's the way we're going to have to do it. You might be able to sell like low grade cocaine over the counter, but I think when it comes to heavy opioids, especially fentanyls and uh, car fentanyls and all the other dumb stuff people might think they want to try, I think you got to find doctors and healthcare providers and therapists that know how to say yes if it comes down to it. But first, we got to talk. It's like a 12, it's an 18 minute half life on fentanyl, right? And granted, it'll get you real high, but you might just want to think about why you're using a drug that is going to be up and down if instead you could use heroin and have your half life be more like 45 minutes. Or maybe you want to start with a Vicodin. You ever tried one? Vicodin? That's not the same thing. Glad you stopped in here, son, right? Yeah. Opioids work this way. If you're going to use them, let's start you on the lowest dose so you don't press your body into tolerance. I mean, all these conversations that when I go to the dope house, the opposite happens. They say, oh, you're here for two Vicodin? I got some good Coke right now. I'll give you a deal. Want some exactly. fentanyl? Yep. Yeah. And, and I, I question, though, whether fentanyl would even be a thing if the war on drugs had, hadn't happened. I mean, I think people would have been content with their heroin or whatever. I like it. <laughs> do you, do you, well, I know that's weird, but yeah, I was I used it for a while. I, not every day. It's really a numb drug, but I had a lot of psychological pain going on. And I think there were days where I mean, heroin is so happy, like as weird as that sounds, people that have used it realize heavy opioids actually do have kind of their own fingerprint. And it, it was always like I'd use it at work and sell cars all day. And like David Posey's talks about, we I wasn't ever very seldom like, but fentanyl was a, yeah, straight up all out. Um, luckily, I was smoking it, which is a safer way to consume it. It's things we could talk about in these DARE meetings if we had them. Because when you take an oral dose of fentanyl, whether it's the patches that are, you at least know how much is in it, or street fentanyl, you're, it's kicking in slowly. So if you go, oh man, I'm getting really high, and then you pass out, there's a chance that it's only a third of the way kicked in and you overdose and die. Whereas if you're smoking it, kicks in fast. And if you do too much, you ass out, and then you're not still having drugs that kick in. So it's a lot harder to overdose that way. Wow, that's but that's how I was doing mine is just smoking patches old school. So anyway, the point was some of us actually. Well, and, and I, I guess the fentanyl in the hospitals would still be a thing because we did that. I remember the lollipops when I was a kid, but that was yeah. not the same. I, the fentanyl, the street fentanyl, I tried it once and I did a super, super small amount and I thought I was going to die. It hit me so hard. <laughs> and um, it's bad. Yeah. Uh, but and, I, and when I but when I smoke heroin, I remember we were waiting tables back then. I would go in the back and smoke heroin, and then go wait tables. And I was better at my job. I was happier. It gave me energy. It, it wasn't like what the it's portrayed on television. Like you smoke heroin, how could you function? Oh, I function great. 
Yeah, I mean, was- some people. And that's what's weird because I've been with friends. I, I think a lot of us addicted people, David Posey's and I talked about this story when I had him on my podcast, have stories of being in rooms full of people who are asked the fuck out and you're over on the counter crushing up the next trail and you're like, are you guys ready? You guys ready? Well, I want to do this and then go ride go-karts. And they're like, <laughs> and realizing it's the same thing I said about the the donut earlier in the episode. It's the wiring. Some people are like half a beer, a light beer and I'm good. And other people are like, I'm ready to go, man. Dose me up and let's head out. Which is, again, why it would be so valuable to have legal markets with professionals who we could talk to about this stuff. Yeah, and, and make it to each individual person their own preferences. And I, I agree with what you're saying. If, if we did legalize the drugs, I think that the heavier ones like heroin, you would you would go to a doctor. I know David Posey was like, I, he's like, I disagree. He's like, I think if you're going to sell enough alcohol that even somebody can go buy a bottle and drink it and kill themselves. And the thing is, that brings up to me the question of how we handle alcohol in this country. Because while I think that that's I think that guy you're buying your alcohol from, I think he just lost his liquor I, I think they probably will still sell something to a degree but when i mean doctors i don't mean my practitioner i mean we've got to have people whose hearts are where they need to be and who are medically trained who will say yes right because you're in the wrong business if when somebody comes to you and says "Fuck you i want heroin right now if you're going to be like well i'm not going to give you that because it's Go to the regular practitioner. We're talking about a group of people that are at that point where they're going to get it one way or another. What they need is just somebody to talk to them, even if it's while they're using to say, let's talk about uh, tomorrow, because if you're using this heroin and it's got that 30, 40 minute half-life, you're going to have to use it a lot. But if you try methadone tomorrow, you might find that you actually feel very much the same until four or five at night, and then you sleep well, actually better because you're not... you're not quite so medicated and in the morning you're still not sick so you don't have to deal with the up and down it's it's this process of figuring out what's going on what we need to do to medicate it and then from there once the band-aid's on what's up what's really going on yeah right is is, is everything cool are you functioning Are, are you living your best life and if not let's figure out what we can do to slowly fix that that's and that's what it is just asking if people are okay might be all it takes and if you know, and again, with the alcohol analogy of the way you can go to a liquor store and buy alcohol, if if we had done alcohol that way, where you go in, you can anybody can go in and buy a bottle, but you just have to be like, hey, is everything okay? And, and there's a therapist there. Is, is everything okay? There might be an alcoholic who's been looking for help, but just doesn't know where to find it and just goes and buys that bottle and goes, you know what? I'd like yeah. to sit and talk. Let's just talk. Yeah. I'm not saying you can't have your drink, pour, pour a glass and let's talk and then figure out how to go from there. And that's what we're yeah. saying with heroin, make it like that. And it would really work better than our current system. Imagine if your liquor store owner even would do something like when you go and just set a fifth of like the cheapest, nastiest vodka there is on the counter and say, yeah, I want this. If he was just like engage in conversation and say, I got this beer over here. It's more expensive, but I'll sell it to you for the same price. Came from this whatever place. Uh, I don't know if you know or not, but there's like some antioxidants and there's a ton of water in it. Alcohol is alcohol, right? But to some degree, you do yourself a favor if it helps you slow down without realizing it. And you can still like they're just simple conversations that even if the person says, I want the bad stuff. Awesome. But tomorrow you might be like, what the hell are you talking about? Why do you care so much? What can you even do for me? You wait, you can do what? Right. And there's these conversations. There's no space for that in our culture. So there's no other way that this turns out except xylazine goes away because we make it illegal in six weeks. And by next year, we've dug up whatever the next terrible thing is that's eating away at people's flesh. And we can blame those idiots who are using street drugs for it instead of looking in the mirror and going, oh, my God, we've made it 
We've incentivized people to use awful drugs in dangerous ways and to not listen to anybody who says they should do differently. Yeah, yeah. And the story about the uh, the clerk at the ABC store reminds me of a story. Just the other day, I was behind a woman who bought a cheap bottle of liquor and paid for it in, in quarters. And she, you know, you could tell she was a, a bad alcoholic. And the, the, the cashier didn't have any questions for her other than he was very upset that he had to count quarters. And when I came up, he rolled his eyes. He's like, I can't believe some of these people. And that's all he said. I just want to be like that. That woman is not in a good place, and she, you know, this. I feel bad for her. Like, but that's our culture, and yeah. So yeah, I, and I don't know how how much longer we're going to do it, but I'm totally with you. We're we're the the dangerous thing is we're quickly running out of common ground in the midst of our polarization, and all the things that you know we used to all agree on are slowly going away. And the war on drugs is one that like it's one of the few left that both sides of the political divide used to be able they still largely do that it should be a thing and that might be this moment that it'd be nice if like a conservative came along and did it because then you might have a better time of getting both sides on board with it and getting cultural change but i feel like that's the, the the more those have slipped out of our culture the more we're like oh we can't all agree to hate gay people anymore okay crap oh we can't all agree women are worthless and shouldn't have a say <laughs> Those were yeah. pillars that everybody could stand on. And as they've gone away culturally, we have seen ourselves get a little more at each other's throats. But I don't know, maybe the drugs will be a natural solution to that, right? You can- it could be. But I've heard people, when, when Oregon's laws first passed, I heard people, it was right before I started the podcast, and was really the final hair that you know, broke the camel's back when I, I would hear these conversations at the bar. People just like, can you look at Oregon? The city's on fire, and they're giving people free drugs and legalizing drugs. I'm like, they're not legalizing. It's not the same. You don't know what you're talking about. And yeah. I was like, you know, I'm going to start a podcast. But like you said, the polarization, I worry because I try to avoid topics about Trump and things like that, because if somebody who loves Donald Trump is listening and they start hearing me say something negative, they'll turn it off. They won't even hear anything else in the conversation other than, oh, he's a liberal. And now I'm labeled liberal and they don't care about any point I make. And I hate that because I'll listen to a conservative. I listen to my mom all the time talk about Trump and we have we have debates. But I'll if you say, like you said, if you give me some information, my mind is open for change. I'm never, ever stuck in any way with a label does not create all my thinking, you know. And we're in the same world because, I mean, this is a couple of times it's come up and I'm like, yeah, I've encountered this one enough that I finally altered my approach to same with the cops, right? Realizing all people hear when you say that is you're an anti-cop, you know, whatever you want people to be able to burn down the the town or whatever is to say, I, I do it with a, it's, we're not, we're not a. Uh, we're guilty too. We're not innocent in this. The liberals, oh my God, <laughs> we're just as pet. And it's worse because we actually have been on our high and mighty horses for four years being like, how can you let this go on? All this name calling and not being honest and then getting mad when they call you to account for the lie. And now I'm watching Biden slowly but surely sort of sink into those same things because it's so normal and it's what gets the, it's what gets the clicks, right? Mm-hmm. Putin's a war criminal. Trump is a liar and anti, I mean, all the stuff, because that's the result of since 2003 social media being the new norm and whatever you post you better believe trolls are going to talk shit to you we've just learned that like i guess it's normal to be mean assholes so i don't know i'm i usually start with like an example of hillary clinton or something and then add trump after that because i catch them when they're like yeah get her and (laughs) or with the biden thing because you sort of you can get people to stay on board but i agree with you it's the worst part of this is that always it's the same thing with the god thing we were talking about christians tend to hear me and say you just hate god you're just angry at god and i'm like hell of a turn but it's where, <laughs> it's kind of where we're programmed right now if somebody isn't totally on my side and they're kind of critical of me they just hate what i'm talking about they're just one of those dumb people over there that are throwing turds right yeah it's hard to get through 
<laughs> it's 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 really crazy and it's not, like i'll be at the bar having a conversation with somebody i work in bars so i'm always at different bars and you know i was trying to have an open conversation with someone about who was who was selling these shirts about our troops and freedom and i, I they're like you want to buy one and i knew this guy i was like and i knew he was just a guy who wanted to make money he didn't care about the troops but i was like no i'm not gonna buy your shirt and, and i made a comment about freedom and this woman just got so mad. She's like, the freedom for you to stand here and have a beer right now. And I was like, what about cocaine? Can I have that? And she's just like, you're an idiot. And I was like, you can't fix it. <laughs> you got to go to the bathroom for that. <laughs> I was like, I'm just asking questions here. I was like, and I'm not hating. Don't, it's like, stop. And I'm, and, but they immediately think I hate the troops. I'm like, no, yeah. I'm not talking shit about the troops. My, my brother-in-law is in the air force. And he was at the time he was deployed. I'm like, I'm not, I have no problem. Like, I have respect for that. Those men, but a lot of them got into it because they didn't really, you know, they might not understand the full complexities of the military machine and what our actual goals are but i don't want to get into that and that's not what this podcast is about i just want to say i don't hate the troops if you yeah. i mean you know <laughs> yeah it's 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 the i mean i i guess that analogy i used earlier it seems like it's stuck with me for the couple of years i stumbled onto it of when you leave an all-in organization or you try to criticize it at all the people that are in it tend to not be able to hear criticism as anything but all or nothing. And that's, I've, I tell my students a lot that criticism is an act of love. It can be an act of shit, but even then you've got to know the thing you're criticizing. If you want to land an insult, you better know something. That means this person or thing was so fascinating to you that you devoted time to learning about it, right? Whatever it was. And there's something to that that's like, maybe we could hash that out a little more and get people to say, oh, I call this the booger on the face syndrome. We've, <laughs> we like have slowly but surely built a culture where your friends would see you with a booger on your face and it's their job to, to tell you what you can't see yourself because you're a human. But instead of being like, we're like, oh, I'd feel awkward. Yeah, I hope she notices, right? Because I think this is related to our social media being so awful. The support groups have sort of switched. It used to be that your friends would be the people that would tell you what you needed to hear. But we're always so fed up with this world, the news, the media, our Facebook account, Twitter, talking shit that we, we feel like our friends need to support us. And if they don't, we defriend them. So we've sort of built a culture where we're getting more and more used to, if you want to, crawling into a corner, plugging your ears, and then being really good at pretending you don't notice that you're in a corner plugging your ears. Wow, yeah, and it's, it's, so it's almost like there's a magnet with different tribes. And if you're in the tribe, it's pulling you more into that tribe and away from the other side, where it used to be, we were all American. When it came down to it, we were all at least that. And I wonder. Cause I've been, I've been thinking like chewing on the, what I said earlier about slavery and massage and women not being able to vote. And like, it seems like those times never really go away. There's no time in our culture where there isn't a big thing front and center. I mean, right now, maybe it's uh, media and I, I'm hoping drugs. I think that hopefully is maybe what will be remembered, but I imagine people hated each other during the original feminist movement in the early 1900s. And we know that they, they sent their sons to fucking die for the institution of slavery because they hated those damn northerners or southerners so much. I, I like, it's, it's weird to be where we're at and to be like, well, yeah, <laughs> at least that's we're not that point. bad, that, but we are, that's, that's we build the country that way. It kind of becomes who we are. Yeah. It's almost like the place I was talking about where we used to be Americans was actually imaginary. It's just the social media has just exposed what we've always been is yeah. a divided country and that's actually a great point i don't know why i was exactly we used to just be americans like well if you were a white man sure but yep, you could play it that's exactly it and you nailed it the the veil that was there is like oh no we can't sustain it anymore and we we've always been a country that fully embraces 
the delusion of it's like we're in a crowd and we're like oh slavery's outlawed well that means we've got a lot of work to do and you're like yeah wait unless we could just say we already did it we're not going to be able to do that or wait are we all just gonna if we all say we already did it (laughs) and it's been over and over we find a problem and we're like fine we'll change it all right done people are like done what what did you do right it's our cultural lineage, right? But again, it's a, it, I don't see that as something that makes this country not prideworthy. On the contrary, like I said earlier, there's something deep at the heart of that, that we've worked through that. That's who we are. And we've still managed to make these huge cultural updates and we continue to do so. That says something to me that at the heart of all that, th- there's some, some good that can come out of it. If you can, right. It's not a, I hate this country. It actually comes across the other way. I want to hold it to account for what it claims to be. Exactly. And try to get there. The, yeah. This idea of this being the perfect place, the land of the free, it's not an unobtainable goal. To, to say right. that we're there is wrong, but to say we can't get there is also wrong. Right. Let's, let's try to, and that's it's actually a great place to wrap up, I think, here, of what we're trying to do with this podcast, with yeah. our movement, is we're trying to get to the place where the, this ideal of America and this country and the world, for that matter, because our laws have dictated drug policies around the world, which they are changing now before us. Thank God. Funny. Yeah. When we stop leading, it's like, oh, crap. Yeah. No, I really appreciate this. This was a blast. I appreciate you getting in the space. And uh, like I said, I I think that this grassroots, the new, I call it like the new digital commons, the podcast arena that hopefully stays largely not behind a paywall as much as possible, is doing something that in the past wasn't possible. And I think it's really important that people are seeing folks like you and I out here that totally destroy their fucking stereotypes and they don't know they don't know what to do with me they're like this dude (laughs) uses drugs still says it all the time teaches college classes writes books i got another book i'm writing now somehow edits and puts out a podcast every week by himself no something ain't right here don't tell your kids about him right there's hope there i found my my healthy i found my definition of recovery that clearly works yeah and and that's that's great. And that's what, you know, that's what we want people to do is be able to find their version of recovery. And yeah. it's, it's really hard for people with, with the war on drugs happening. Yep. So let me ask you this uh, for my listeners. I really, really loved your book. It was really fascinating. And I learned so much that the left brain, right thing, brain thing was absolutely mind blowing. And it does really destroy the free will thing. You remember the story about the guy that the railroad spiked through his frontal lobe yeah. and became yeah. a completely different person. I mean, that's another example of just where, where was the free will in that? Now he's stealing from people and he's an asshole. Like it's not, I mean, so yeah. you look at the CTE, like Aaron Hernandez, like when they did the brain scan after yeah. he killed himself, his whole frontal lobe was, was almost gone and he was killing people, but people, people don't want to, the problem is right. If you, if you blame, if you don't blame people for their bad choices, then you can't praise yourself for, for what you have. You can't justify, oh, I have three houses and a car because I'm a great, hardworking right. American. Anyway, where do, where can people get your book? Because you sent me a copy and I loved it. Yeah, wherever wherever you want, it's on Amazon, Barnes and Noble. Um, I, it's Loyola Press, so they may sell it on their website, but I haven't seen it on there yet. But just your mainstream one. What's awesome is if you go into your local bookstore now that we can again and just say, hey, I'd like to buy this here. That's the best way to do it because they usually will give you. A discount and then they buy a couple too but oh so that's the, so just go to your local barnes and noble or wherever you wherever you buy books and just tell me yep. you want to order it and they'll order it for you and like yeah and it's already like it's on the big website you can get it online right now on amazon or whatever well, i'm gonna tell you, i'm gonna do that because i'm gonna buy i'm gonna buy a copy from one of my friends um so i'm gonna go to the barnes and noble and do that myself. yeah dude i really really did enjoy it it's awesome and Again, thank you so much for doing this and being on the podcast. And um, yeah, I'll let's in- do it again sometime maybe we'll i can have it. you on mine and we'll hash out some some more <laughs> do, do you do any in person 
Uh, yeah, it's, I mean, it's like this started with the COVID thing. And right now I'm teaching so much. I got two prisons I teach at in Colorado, but seven or eight weeks from now, nine weeks from now, things will loosen up a little bit. So yeah, it's a possibility. Well, I'll be in Denver in June. So I'll reach out uh, even if we don't do a podcast in person. Oh yeah. Can, yeah. You can, we can get together and smoke yeah. some weed and get drunk and record something. Let's do it. Awesome. Hell yeah. Well, I'll reach out when I'm coming out. It'll be like June 23rd. Cool. Sounds All right. Good. Well, thank you so much for being on here. I loved it, man. Great talking with you. Yeah. I'll talk to you soon. All right. All right. Peace, Nicks. Thanks for listening. Remember, if you like what we're doing, go on Apple Podcasts, give us a five-star rating. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, the Peace on Drugs podcast. Go to www.thepeaceondrugs.com slash subscribe to subscribe to our newsletter. And if you want to try a hemp cigarette that doesn't taste like shit, go to sugarcali.com, enter the promo code PEACE15 for 15% off. All right. Let's let Twiggy Branches take us out. Peace out. Peace out. Peace out.